Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. And in this episode, we'll be doing Team Fast 1220 to 1233. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 1220. Story number one. One last story, written by Barsoom Israel. John stood tall, looking over the frail form of his small daughter. Grief threatened to consume him, but for her sake, he knew he had to remain strong. John was not sure how much more he could take. Outside the emergency habitat, two freshly turned dirt mounds were off to the right, under the beautiful alien tree with purple leaves. His wife loved that tree and his son spent his days climbing its branches. Now, they both were beneath it. It had been a little over a year when the ship's engines failed, and they'd limped here, to this unexplored alien world that would sustain their lives. The planet was rich in animal and plant life, water, breathable air. They could make a go of it. Or so they thought. There was something else here, something in the air or the water. Something they called the Fade. The Fade was a disease that attacked the systems of the human bodies, causing weakness and fatigue. Each day getting worse until the victim just died. Until the victim just... faded. He claimed his son first. He got sick, and less than two weeks later, he was gone. His wife was already showing symptoms of the disease as they buried their son under the purple-leafed tree trying vainly to hide her weakness from him. But John knew he had known for days. She had made it for a month. John felt that his heart would break, if not for him, but for his daughter, sobbing quietly into her hands. He had to stay strong. He had to. And just last week, he had trouble waking Lily, his daughter, He was panicked as when she finally awoke, as she had the same dull, weary look in her eyes. He cried out and hugged her tightly, but he knew she had the fade. For days, he watched her slip away from him. He knew the time had to be near when Lily's eyes flickered open and struggled to focus on him. Daddy, she said softly. Yes, my little star. I'm here, John replied. Lily smiled a bit at the nickname her dad had given her, his little star. Can you tell me a story? She asked, her voice barely a whisper. Of course, sir. One last story and then you get some rest. Smiling even more, Lily snuggled deeper into her blankets and waited for the story to begin. Good, she said. One last story. John cleared his throat and began. Once upon a time... There was a beautiful space princess named Lily. Dad, Lily scolded, that's my name. Oh, no, little star, your name is Lily. The space princess is named Lily. Did you forget your own name already? As a week as she was, Lily rolled her eyes, but her smile grew wider. As I was saying, John continued, Lily was a beautiful space princess and had many suitors vying for her attention. 
But her father, the, the Space King, knew that there was no one in the entire universe that was good enough for his daughter. Lily rejected every suitor and complained to her father that there was no one for her, no one that made her feel safe and happy. So the Space King searched far and wide for many years to find a place where Lily could find happiness. John gently wiped a stray golden hair back from Lily's face and continued. After a long time, the Space King found a place that would be perfect. There was no pain for his daughter to endure, no hunger, no strife. All of the people in this very special place would love his daughter, and she would be truly happy and find peace. But the price to enter this place was was very high. What was the price? Lady asked, her voice so low John could barely hear it. The, the price, little star, was that the king could not see his princess again for, for many years. She had to go alone. His daughter did not reply, but he could tell that she was still listening. The king loved his daughter so, so much that he agreed to the terms and giving her one long last hug she left and entered the place where she ran laughing across the vast swaths of grass with loved ones all around her she was in a special a happy place john looked at his daughter who opened her eyes she struggled to say something, but the light in his little star's eyes flickered and slowly faded away. The ghost of a warm smile still on her lips. Roaring grief and unimaginable agony to the heavens, John crushed the small girl's body to his chest. It was days later when John realized that he had to continue on with life. He exited the emergency habitat and cast a glance at the beautiful purple-leafed tree. Now, with the third mound of freshly turned dirt beneath it. As a feeling of grief and loneliness threatened to engulf him, he turned away and walked to the top of a small nearby hill. He stood, staring across the endless horizons, silhouetted in the light of the setting alien sun. And there, to the left of the glowing orb, the first stars of night appeared, and one he never saw before. A small, little star, flickering and dancing in the heavens, and above it, as if keeping watch over the little one, two other stars shone. Through the grief and pain, he felt a reassuring feeling blossom in his chest. He smiled and let out a quick sob at the same time. He smiled up to the star. Good night, dear one, he said aloud, until we meet... Again, and I will tell you stories anew. End of chapter. Story number two. Adorable Ferocity. Written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore. The most troubling aspect of the invasion was the uncanny valley of the aliens. They looked like cat girls from a pervy anime. Even the males of their species and the end results of meeting the big-eyed cat people was uniquely unsettling. Unsettling, if it wasn't your fetish. 
There were a number of humans who tried to Captain Kirkett, only to receive a mauling befitting a cat girl's anime-like nature, meaning uh, over-the-top and generally not very harmful to the recipient. Our space invaders weren't going anywhere, dead set on their conquest as they were, but their antics and over-the-top nature meant that they weren't true threats to the military forces of the world. Yes, they could kill a human, and humans did get killed by them, but humans could kill them almost by accident. The first military engagement was so utterly one-sided towards Earth's forces that humanitarian and animal rights activists started to speak up in protest. It's like kicking puppies or drowning kittens, an unidentified soldier in the United States Army answered a reporter's questions, having just returned from the front. I feel bad doing it. I don't want to do it again. After a time, the military units came to see the assaults and attacks from these space invaders like an owner might view a kitten sneak attack pounces or ferocious flailing antics of kitten doom. This was best summed up by a soldier of the People's Army of China. Yes, we were officially attacked today. It was the first for the Northern Theater Command. The soldier laughed. They <laughs> were adorably ferocious and... Uh, we did our best to liven up the assault with theatrics and melodrama. The soldier paused as the reporter asked another question. Yes, um, I think we were far more theatrical than our American counterparts in California. The relationship between Earth's armed forces and the invaders wasn't always so kind. In perhaps the weirdest brushfire conflict since their arrival, a combined Israeli, Iranian, and Egyptian task force intervened when the Kakals decided their best chance at conquest was to assault the remnants of ISIS. Something visceral, despite the uncanniness to their appearance, didn't sit well when the video of Kakals getting creatively and crudely annihilated was aired. Later, it came to light the commanding officers of the elements involved had acted independently, a denial the world rolled its eyes at, but accepted. Traditional enemies had to be enemies, even when someone was yanking on a kitten's tail. Soon after that incident, it was decided something had to be done. The military and paramilitaries of the world might be having a gas, but it was disrupting trade. A grand solution was devised, even if the world eyed the United States for suggesting it. Reservations. The plan was simple, and every major power scrambled to ensure that they'd have their own set of reservations. No one wanted to be left behind technologically. That was how the Kakils successfully invaded Earth. They invaded designated zones where the military forces of Earth could easily babysit them while politicians did their best to get Kakil technology. After all, they might be ineffective soldiers, but they could travel the stars. Humanity wanted to be able to do that too. Anthropologists couldn't help but note the similarity between the manner humanity adopted felines and how humanity had come to adopt our space invaders. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1221. Just a quick thing for the story. There are some authors that I have approval from, from before I started the whole scrolling text thing. So I have permission for the narration, but I don't have permission for the scrolling text. I've asked for it, and they've either said no or not got back to me, because life being life and all of that. So, I'm going to read this story with a game in the background, and please don't annoy the author relating to the scrolling text and the narration. Anyways, I hope you enjoy. Story number one. Do not feed the humans, written by Perilous Platypus. Rangers, the Galactic Zoo protocols exist for a reason. 
Species need to demonstrate their ability to participate in interstellar society before they are granted a provisional access license, or PAL. This was for their protection, as well as for the protection of all sentients. Since it appears the dire nature of the situation has not been properly understood by the Ranger Corps, I will repeat the nature and purpose of the relevant zoo protocols. The preconditions for PAL are relatively simple. One, a species must be post-conflict. Two, a species must be post-scarcity. Three, a species must be post-expansionism. Until the species reaches that point, they're to be denied access to the interstellar byways and confined to the designated natural habitat zones, NATHAB, a space extending roughly 20 light years out from their home world. Effective, safe, and fair. Therefore, it is with great concern that I read reports that humanity has extended beyond its NATHAB and has been as far as 6,000 light years from their home world. As you are most certainly aware, humanity is a conflict-riven, scarcity-driven expansion of species that has already caused considerable imbalances in each region that they have expanded to. I strongly advise you to determine the means they have utilized to escape their NATHAB and restore the proper balance as soon as possible. As you well know, the unchecked Prepal society is one of the greatest threats to our galactic order. Thank you for your immediate attention on this matter. Haxon Lee of Gorp. Executive Director of Zoo Affairs, Second Spiral. Tax flushed the mucus out both neck veins with irritation. Every time Tax turned around, Haxanelli was crawling up into her egg sack and bitching about the human situation. If he thought that he could do better, he was welcome to hop the byways with her and see if he could do better. It wasn't her fault that they weren't making headway. The rangers weren't staffed up for whatever the crap was going on. Humans everywhere. As soon as she corralled some up, another dozen calls had already come in from somewhere else. Half the rangers were threatening to quit, their brains running to ooze from the many byway jumps without a break. All of the containment protocols just weren't designed for something like this. Most of the time, the bad actors were a few rebel members of the PAL or even a full-fledged SAL civilization. A few poachers riding forbidden byways into NatHab zones to pick up a few curios for sale on the black markets. No problem to get on top of even when their breach had been going on for a while. Snap the poachers off and that was that. Sure, once in an eon you get a pre-pal sieve that putters its way out in NatHab on sublight. But that was easy enough to clear up. Disappear enough putters and eventually they stopped trying. And this was different... Tax called up a registry and looked at the outstanding jobs. Her eye stalks retracted half into her skull when she saw the count was over a thousand. She'd been doing back-to-backs until her Fabian brain was half mush and they were just falling further behind. She sent out a ping to Yebbers. He'd come along in this latest jaunt with her. They liked to team up when they could, even though she was a flib and he was a barrow. They got along just fine. Ranger Corps before species... That was how it was supposed to be. You seeing this, Tax sent. Over a thousand, Yebbers replied. The count was pretty much the only thing they talked about these days. That and the humans themselves. I'm losing cohesion. I'm not sure that I got that many more jumps in me. Yeah, they all were. But Haxon Lee would keep sending them out until their brains leaked out of the first orifice they could find. No way Haxon Lee was going to put his head on the chopping block when he could put them on it instead. 
You hear they captured a mechanism. Tax flapped events, just a rumor. Point to point, just a rumor, Tax repeated. Explains a lot, doesn't it? It did, but it also was impossible. All the signs said that you could bore a byway, but you couldn't bend and puncture it. Point to point wasn't a thing. They're not even close to getting a PAL, and you think they figured out point to point. You've seen them blip out, same as me. One second they're here, and the next they're gone. Could be cloaking. Yebbers chattered in amusement. Tax, uh, we've been riding jaunts together for a long time, haven't we? Tax didn't reply, but Yebbers took it for an agreement because it was the truth. So he continued. You tell me then, what do you think they're doing? They're too far out for sublight, too many of them in too many places for a bandit byway job. Yevers was right. She hadn't seen anything like this before. There was also the bigger problem that most species liked the humans. They were dynamic and different, exotic and crazy, all of which were nicer ways of putting what they were actually were. Dangerous. If they're point to point, then... Dax drifted off. It changed everything. The galactic order would be put on its head. Containments would be a thing of the past. Byways would be an obsolete overnight, along with all the economic systems that were built on them. Chaos would reign. Yeah, we're all fact. They could move from containment to enforced quarantine. Amused clicks submitted over the comm. More likely, His Holiness of the Executive Director will issue an unprecedented fourth communication in a cycle, Yebbers said. Dax suspected that he was on the credits there. Something was off about the entire situation. This was an emergency, but there didn't seem to be a reaction. No grand political alliance of pals and cells had come together to take care of the human issue. More and more, Dax began to believe that some elements were actually working with the humans. It was crazy, almost treasonous thought, but she couldn't shake it. Every time the Count notched up, she wondered how the humans had even known where to find the civilization, how they had spread so far and so accurately. Her vents dried up as she even considered it, but she was left with only one conclusion. Someone was feeding the humans. End of story. Story number two. Battle Bodies, written by Terran Eclipse 3101. Those things are going to kill the hordes of the six-legged armored monsters that we are about to face? Asked a very large and nervous, yet curious, bird-like creature. The look of disbelief on her face as she looked down on the much smaller human standing in front of her. Yeah, basically, the human said as he loaded his weapon, the clanking of metal filling the bird's ears. The human pulled back the bolt on the gun and it made a racking sound. RX RFMG 399 Buzzle, loaded with plasma coated 9.51 by 114mm rounds and a 250 drum magazine, courtesy of the good folks of RMX Armories. The large bird's wings slumped as the human set the weapon down and picked up a harness and two pegs from the table before walking over to her and then behind her. The bird felt three clicks on her back as if the pegs connected to her armor followed by a harness. The Galactic Concord's military had a crazy idea when the small yet scary humans started joining. Battle buddies, they called it. The idea was simple. A human would connect two pegs and a harness to her larger comrade's backs and essentially use them as a mobile gun platforms. It worked surprisingly well. 
the humans jumped onto pegs, shifting his weight around a little before jumping back off. He collected his weapon and climbed back on. A small socket opened up in the bird's shoulder armor, and the human mounted the weapon on it, moving it around and making sure that it was secure. Taking his full-face helmet from the magnetic mounting on his tactical belt, he slipped it on over his head. He did a quick check of his armor and the armor of his twelve-foot-tall companion. Finding nothing out of the ordinary, he leaned into the bird's neck, feeling a thick feathers through the skin-tight bodysuit she wore under her armor. All good back there, the bird asked as she lifted her much larger plasma rifle off the table. Oh yeah, let's kill some monsters, shall we? The human responded as rushing air filled the dropship. Several more battle buddies stood around them. Some were nervous, some were stoic, and still others were laughing at the ridiculousness of the situation that they found themselves in. A hatch opened in front of them, and the ground below revealed itself, scorched and unforgiving. A buzz filled the dropship, and from front of them, several pairs began jumping to the ground below. The bird-like creatures, large wings slowing the fall. Finally, it was their turn to jump. Ready, the human yelled. The bird responded with a deafening squawk as she jumped out into the hole, falling slowly to the ground as plasma fire rained in around them. The monstrously loud bangs from the various human weapons filled the battlefield. The two ran guns blazing into the enemy positions and a video ended, just catching the beginning of a stream of maniacal laughter coming from the human. So, class, uh, this was a video extract taken from the helmet cam of a human soldier during the battle for Takazi 3. You can see how the insertion into hostile territory looks like from a soldier's POV. Any questions? The classroom of cadets remained silent, somewhat shocked by the footage they watched, even if it showed no real violence. Finally, a brightly colored bird raised his hands, Sir, they aren't really called battle buddies, are they? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1222 Story number one. Only humans have souls. Written by Dynomar. Chilla was holding her father's hand while they walked through the bizarre courtyard when they passed a couple of humans yelling at each other. Father... Why did that alien yell at the other alien to go to hell? Where is hell? She asked her father. Well, um, Gustus said as he tried to figure out how to explain it. Some humans believe that a god or gods created the universe. Like Truenda, Militia says that Pierre I think she said, exploded and created the universe. Truenda did not worship their god. Humans will pray to their gods. They will thank them for life or give offering for good fortune. And sometimes they ask for help. Do the gods help them? Some humans say they do. Others say that they do not. Uh, I saw one of their moving pictures and someone in it said that their god answers all requests. But sometimes the answer is no. But humans are unique in that they are the only beings that believe in an afterlife. An afterlife? Chilla asks. They believe that when they die, a part of them will leave their body and go live with the gods. They call it their soul. So, uh, humans have souls that live with their gods when they die? 
Yes, but uh, some humans believe in a place where the soul of evil humans will go instead of living with their god. They call it hell. So that human was calling the other one evil? Yes, yes, you're very smart. Gusta smiled and drummed his fingers down the scales on the back of Chilla's head. You said that some humans believe in gods. What about the ones who do not? Do they have souls? If they do not believe in the afterlife, then there is no place for their soul to go, so I don't know why they would have one. Maybe they go to one of the afterlives anyway. But, um, which one? If I believe in their gods, would I get a soul? Chillis asked as she looked up at her father in earnest. I, um, I do not know he replied, as he looked down in embarrassment at her because he could not give her an answer. Can we find out? Yes, uh, there is a human religious center in town. There are many human religions there. Good. Having a soul sounds like it would be nice. Yes, it does. I also heard that there are some religions that believe your soul comes back as another being. Oh, that would be nice too. End of story. Story number two. Battle Bodies, written by Terran Eclipse 3101. Those things are going to kill the hordes of the six-legged armored monsters that we are about to face? Asked a very large and nervous, yet curious, bird-like creature. The look of disbelief on her face as she looked down on the much smaller human standing in front of her. Yeah, basically, the human said as he loaded his weapon, the clanking of metal filling the bird's ears. The human pulled back the bolt on the gun and it made a racking sound. RX RFMG 399 buzzle, loaded with plasma coated 9.51 by 114 mm rounds and a 250 drum magazine courtesy of the good folks of Arm X Armories. The large bird's wings slumped as the human set the weapon down and picked up a harness and two pegs from the table before walking over to her and then behind her. The bird felt three clicks on her back as if the pegs connected to her armor followed by a harness. The Galactic Concord's military had a crazy idea when the small yet scary human started joining. Battle buddies, they called it. The idea was simple. A human would connect two pegs and a harness to a larger comrade's backs and essentially use them as a mobile gun platforms. It worked surprisingly well. The humans jumped onto pegs, shifting his weight around a little before jumping back off. He collected his weapon and climbed back on. A small socket opened up in the bird's shoulder armor and the human mounted the weapon on it, moving it around and making sure that it was secure. Taking his full-face helmet from the magnetic mounting on his tactical belt, he slipped it on over his head. He did a quick check of his armor and the armor of his twelve-foot-tall companion. Finding nothing out of the ordinary, he leaned into the bird's neck, feeling a thick feathers through the skin-tight bodysuit she wore under her armor. All good back there, the bird asked as she lifted her much larger plasma rifle off the table. Oh yeah, let's kill some monsters, shall we? The human responded as rushing air filled the dropship. Several more battle buddies stood around them. Some were nervous, some were stoic, and still others were laughing at the ridiculousness of the situation that they found themselves in. A hatch opened in front of them, and the ground below revealed itself. 
scorched and unforgiving. A buzz filled the dropship and from front of them, several pairs began jumping to the ground below. The bird-like creatures, large wings slowing the fall. Finally, it was their turn to jump. Ready, the human yelled. The bird responded with a deafening squawk as she jumped out into the hole, falling slowly to the ground as plasma fire rained in around them. The monstrously loud bangs from the various human weapons filled the battlefield. The two ran guns blazing into the enemy positions and a video ended, just catching the beginning of a stream of maniacal laughter coming from the human. So, class, uh, this was a video extract taken from the helmet cam of a human soldier during the battle for Takazi 3. You can see how the insertion into hostile territory looks like from a soldier's POV. Any questions? The classroom of cadets remained silent, somewhat shocked by the footage they watched, even if it showed no real violence. Finally, a brightly colored bird raised his hands. Sir, they aren't really called battle buddies, are they? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1223. Story number one. Battle Cry, written by Nobleman LT. We discovered humans on a small mining outpost near the edges of our space. The usual protocol involves sending a small scouting party to evaluate new species and what to do with them. These encounters rarely get violent, but if they do, the protocol is clear. Orbital bombardment and classify them as hostile. I know this may seem harsh, but you see, we are a telepathic species, one of our rare hive minds with preserved individuality. We evolved this way on our planet to be one step ahead of the predators. Usual hive minds don't really care about their drones as they can reproduce at an astonishing rate. Not us. We require almost as much time as humans do. A fact we learned later. During the first encounter, our scouts evaluated their technology. Conclusion, crude but functional. Mostly made up of equipment for mining. Some FTL communications capability and use of motherships to perform long jumps for the freight. Initial mental scans also revealed that they were pretty new to this location and colonizing via FTL in general. Twelve human cycles at most since they occupied this territory. Diva scans became worrying. They are a brutal race, getting their own kind in wars, in disputes over territory, over a mate, or in extreme cases out of sheer boredom. This is a stark contrast to our culture. It is impossible for us to kill one of our own and not feel its pain. Or to hide the act when the thoughts are instantly available to our collective consciousness. This discovery has caused our scouts to become uneasy and careless. It's been a while since death because of a sentient creature was a possibility we encountered. Fear, like they say, is an off switch. Scouts have become paranoid careless, and have managed to get themselves into a skirmish. During that time, a human child was accidentally killed. The sound of the screaming parents spread like a virus through their minds, rage consuming all of our thoughts and actions. Our scouts were slaughtered before they even realized what they did. Their deaths shattered our curiosity, twisted into pain and lust for revenge. 
as the eyes of our people were closing one by one. Our ships were already preparing for takeoff. Closest outpost sent a small fleet to eradicate this infestation. It was going to take some time to get there, but not enough for our rage to subside. These stewards have no idea what pain they have caused us. An accident during our first encounter is not a reason to kill our scouts. Doesn't even make sense. None were spared for interrogation. No attempt to cease fire was made. Clearly, they were savages with some tools to dig up stones faster. Nothing more. When our fleets arrived, they were met by a puny welcoming party of 30-ish interceptor-sized vessels. They were no match for our ships, but they were there. Futile, definitely. Stupid, maybe. They were trying to buy some time for their mothership to leave the system. We could not allow that. So we opened a channel and informed them about their imminent deaths. One condition was given. Surrender now and some of your offspring might be spared for study and research. The response was received, caught us off guard. It was not a coherent language that our translator software could interpret. Our foremost ship's crew attempted careful telepathic probes. Turns out that they were chanting over their intercom something they called a haka. Even though their telepaths are trained and careful, the pure emotion of it all started to pull our minds into theirs. We saw with their eyes a tidal wave, a huge beast, an army of demons in front of them. Yet they showed up, they were scared out of their minds, and they were trying to induce the rage for battle like the one before. A rudimentary method of self-control and morale boost. But as they chanted, they were no longer seeing a beast or a force in nature that would wipe them out. They saw their children standing next to them. They saw a father and a mother figure placing their hands on their son's shoulders. Then the grandparents and the great-grandparents, and so on, until the minds went into the deepest moments of history, each generation with a burden of their own to carry. From the wooden ships crafted to cross the bottomless ocean, to the wars that they have survived, to the promise of a new world awaiting them in the stars. Yes, they were afraid. Who wouldn't be? But they were also staring death in the face, mocking it with their crude insults and rituals, carrying their entire history of struggle not as a burden, but as armor. It was at that point we understood what has happened and why their response was so violent. These people would gladly die and take out as many of us as they can, just to make sure their species lives on. Not only that, they were proto-telepathic, definitely had the potential to become elevated like our people. But we also saw a glimpse into their genetic memory, a very faint capability to recall their past on a level so embedded into them that they are not even aware of it. This revelation caused a silence in our minds as every person was processing what they saw. There were many ideas popping up in our consciousness, but one was unanimous. We can't kill them. We must do everything in our power to mend our very unfortunate first encounter. These humans were the closest things to us. That was not us. After our minds have clear, we turned off our weapons. Humans were done chanting and just sitting in their tiny ships, ready to go into battle at a moment's notice. Their mothership 
with refugees were slowly lumbering into orbit, there was no move made against it. We opened a channel again. We are sorry. We didn't know. End of story. Story number two. Seasonings written by Redshift Razor. Ah, business is booming, especially since you humans arrived at the station. It seems that you guys can't get enough of my food. Really? Uh, well, uh, that's excellent news, Marax. You must be an amazing chef, especially since most human seasonings are banned in the Federation space, sir. May I ask what you use to spice your food? Hmm, I don't see any harm in telling you. I use a seasoning called Recumbo, which has a great umami flavor. If you use it the right amount, it can make dishes almost addicting, to the point where I thought that my regular human patrons would gain weight. But fortunately, it seems the opposite has happened. The opposite? Oh yes, I found the confusing at first, but that's what humans exemplify, no? Nearly all of my customers have lost a noticeable amount of weight, but that's just one of the oddities my human patrons have shown recently. What do you mean, just one? Well, my human customers have shown other strange behaviors, such as being strangely aggressive and anxious, being very restless, talking strangely, and constantly pestering me for more food. Although the last one isn't really a bad thing, I suppose. And are they showing any other behaviors such as, for example, a tendency to steal? Why, yes. How did you know? Just the other day I caught Melissa pilfering my kitchen stock. She wouldn't leave when I asked her to, so I had to call the station security. Which is a shame. Up until now, she's been an excellent and upstanding person. Hey, I'm just gonna throw this idea out there. Have any humans who are not your customers been displaying these behaviors? You know what? I noticed they haven't. Uh, how strange. And you don't see the connection. I see what you're getting at. But it can't possibly be my fault. After all, you humans consume far more potent foods than what I have to offer. Hmm, I suppose. Well, just to give me some peace of mind, uh, can I have the chemical formula for a combo? Sure, if I put it into human terms, it would be C17H21NO4. Are you fucking serious? Human journal, have I offended you in some way? Why would you curse at me? Morax, do you know what you're serving your customers in human terms? What am I serving them? Crack! You're literally putting crack in their food. Ah, I see. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1224 The Planet of a Thousand Gods Written by Arctis 2020 The air in the room was tense. What had been, just a few moments ago, a series of fiery declamations on the superiority of the Vakerti Empire over the humans was chilled by a speaker from the Vakertian Pantheon. Our great and gracious gods in all their wisdom and knowledge have granted us one plea, the speaker had said. Do not wage war on the humans. The emperor and his advisors looked at the hooded figure sitting amongst them. The Vigerti of the religious caste had white scales, was adorned in a traditional hooded clothing of the order, and wore a blindfold, as is customary amongst those granted the title of speaker. It is said that it is because only those who are able to directly commune with the Vigertian pantheon are granted the honor of being a speaker. 
and that glanced into the eyes of such individuals would flood one's mind with visions that the speaker has witnessed until one has been rendered mad. Of course, most would say that this is nothing more than a glorified myth, and that this garb was purely ceremonial. Grand Commander Tortor and his imposing imperial battle armor of the grayish-green scales rose, easily towering over the vast majority of advisors. This, this, he began, seething with rage and unable to find the right words. It had long been known that the garbs of the orders were made purposely ambiguous in honor of the similarly ambiguous pantheon. In fact, it had long been assumed that the only the most ambiguous members of the species could become speakers, due to their closer proximity to the pantheon's likeness. Another ceremonial myth. Surely, Beaker, the commander finally said, pointing his sharp claws at the hooded figure. Surely it is with the fear that drives them to speak these words. Their cowardice shadows their judgment. Grand Commander Torda looked at his fellow advisors. Surely our gods know of the greatness of his excellency's empire. Our economy and industrial capacity can bar our class, the fractured, costless, and disordered society of humanity. Their factories churn unnecessary rubble into their desire for... Uh, Daughter grimaced as he mimics the human tongue. Equality. Our military outnumbers theirs tenfold. Our arms for our class theirs. They may as well be a seraph laid bare, awaiting slaughter. At this, the other advisors nodded in agreement. And their pantheon, the commander speaks in a harsh but hushed tones, as if avoiding the ears of the inquisitors of the order while directly antagonizing its speaker. It consists of thousands of deities. Their beliefs are fractured and the power of their gods are weak because of this. Not to mention the fact that about half of their species are... Grand Commander Torda paused, his face contorting further as he's forced to speak such an atrocious word. Atheist. The other advisors expressed disgust. The Vakertian Empire had long been a largely religious species. From its first steps into sentience, they had always followed one deity or the other, and they have long fought in honor of their patrons. Pantheons would rise and fall, rival gods would either be killed or integrated into the strongest pantheon. The strength of the gods were determined by the number and devotion of their followers. When the Empire stepped into the galactic stage, they found that other species had much the same experience. Either rival pantheons would compete until the strongest prevailed, or there would only be one pantheon to begin with. In rare, pitiful cases, the gods would destroy each other until none were left, leaving their followers weakened and aloof, forced to fend for themselves. The Vakerti learned early on that they cannot charge off into the crusades against rival pantheons, as the cost would be far too great. Instead... They held a policy of mutual respect, engaging in open trade and diplomacy, and providing aid and protection for worlds whose pantheons had fallen into the short-sightedness. That had been the way for eons, and they had always assumed that this would continue by the grace of their gods. But then, the humans came. First contact with the humans went along smoothly. That this species had no deity was unsurprising. They were born on a death world, 
so they might as well have been forsaken from the moment that they gained sentience. What sadistic deity, after all, would grant self-awareness to a species subjected to such conditions? But then, the Empire's diplomats meant more of these humans. At first, finding followers of a handful of deities was not too surprising. There have been other civilizations, albeit uncommon, that have found ways of ensuring non-believers and followers of the Pantheon could exist in harmony, despite the idea being unfathomable to the Vakirti Empire. Mutual respect was still possible. Of course, however, something had crossed the line for the Empire. Unbeknownst to the humans, in fact, the humans right now would think that they were just a few cycles away from a formal alliance with the highly diplomatic Vakirti Empire. If they caught wind of the ongoing discussion, it would probably send their diplomatic corps into a panic frenzy. But that is a tale for another day. You have this many deities in a single pantheon of a species capable of divine technologies such as FTL travel and have an empire class for non-believers at the same time. The Grand Commander Snarled goes against the very doctrines of creation. Such chaos is a threat to our very reality. If we were to raise this with our most fervent allies, they, too, would be outraged, and the combined might of our empires and gods would blot the light of their home star of these aberrations in one fell swoop. The room erupted with cheers from across the table, a fervent, fiery nationalism arising from the heart of all who were present, all, that is, except the ever-patient speaker and the most observant emperor. After a few moments, the entire room became quiet as the advisors turned back to look at the hooded figure, eager for a reply, some smirking with confidence, while others looked on with dread. Grand Commander Torna remained standing, his bulk towering over the more slender build of the speaker, like a predator eyeing his prey. Commander, the speaker asked as if he had carefully measured each word that he was about to say. How much do you know of human history? Torna scoffed a white mass. If you are referring to the weapons of mass destruction, we can easily defend against them. If you are speaking of the fact that they had detonated such armaments against their own kind in honor of their own respective gods, then so be it. We have met countless others. No, the speaker interrupted. His voice still measured his expression, stoic. No, the Grand Commander replied, confused, amused, and perhaps a bit outraged. Pray tell me, oh great speaker, what have I gotten wrong? The humans did not detonate their nuclear armaments by the command of their gods, the speaker stated bluntly. They did so on their own accord. What foolishness do you speak of? Torda snapped back, unable to accept what he just heard. Indeed, it was not uncommon that a species of all beliefs would willingly commit such a heinous act if commanded by their deity. But to say that a species willingly did so on their own, insanity! The speaker stood as confident as with purpose as the Grand Commander, yet as graceful as the gods themselves. It is true that this war that we speak of began on the whims of some of their gods. It is true that their actions were swayed by the higher powers of their world. 
albeit without them realizing which gods they hoped to honor by doing so. It is true that many gods of many pantheons took sides in the conflict, as in all conflicts that we are familiar with. The advisors then nodded in agreement. Grand Commander Torda remained still, wondering where this was going. But our gods had reached out to theirs to seek understanding, the speaker continued, and it is with our great horror that they found a deep scar that'll last until the end of time inflicted on all the gods of all the pantheons of humanity. The gods of gods of each pantheon of humanity spoke plainly and truthfully. Their creation heeded their words with a passion none in the universe had seen before. The speaker took a breath, again measuring his words carefully, and uh, burned their own gods and fellow followers indiscriminately in the process. It is for this reason that they coexist as they do now, for the alternative is a complete destruction of their entire plane of existence. Grand Commander Torda slammed his fist on the table, making the advisors closest to him flinch. Lies! He bellowed. Trickery from their gods and chaos mischief! You must have communed with their gods, blasphemer! To even suggest that there can remain many pantheons to this day is insanity. No species can gain enlightenment without the rise of a single unified pantheon. Oh, advisors, your excellency, we must cease entertaining this babbling fool. The speaker reached up from behind their head and unfastened their blindfold, turning their head to the Grand Commander. If you do not wish to heed my words, the speaker began with a tint of anger, slowly opening their eyes, then received the visions of our guards. The Grand Commander taught us all the speaker's eyes for the first time dark as the void and with white specks like a starry night sky. Before he could muster a reply, his mind was flooded with images, gods whispering into human ears, weapons of war firing across the battle lines, angular metal boxes and wheels with guns strapped on top of them, charging across fields and foe alike. Industries of peace and prosperity turned instantly into machines of war. And then he saw the worst of these images. Gods across both sides standing in shocked horror, soldiers herded like cattle, forced to walk from one end of the land bias to the other on the planet's equatorial regions. Gods weeping for their creation, entire families herded into camps and subjected to unspeakable acts of violence, forced labor and toxic fumes. Gods showing regrets. Afterlives of a hundred forms filled by the thousands, each rotation. Then it came, big, bright explosion, thundering from the planet's surface to its atmosphere. The explosions only barely masking the collective screams of thousands of gods of hundreds of pantheons of humanity. An intense burning sensation spread across the Grand Commander's body, as if he'd been dropped from orbit into the core of their home star. Then, clarity, a promise, never again. The Grand Commander could now see that the speaker who was fastening his blindfold once more. Torda slowly sat down, a look of horror on his face. The other advisors tried to ask what he saw, but he could not find the will to speak. The speaker, once more adorning his blindfold and hood, turned towards the Emperor. Your Excellency, 
It is true that human society is disordered and chaotic when compared to our own. Their gods bicker amongst themselves over menial things as much as the humans themselves do on a daily basis. Their systems are redundant, their priorities are illogical, and their resources are insufficiently utilized. But right now, the Empire far outclasses and outnumbers the humans. That is all true, the speaker says, respectfully bowing. But the gods have determined that any action against this race would lead to our undoing. If we blot out their home stock with our mighty fleets, there will be a dozen gods that lay claim to it as their domain. If we land upon their world, there will be a hundred gods of nature, thunder and storms and seas, ready to sweep our forces aside. And yet, worse yet, if we crack open the crust of their homeworld, we risk inviting the wrath of their species' primordial deity, Gaia, who slumbers deep within the crust and whom the humans worship simply by their will to live. And that has yet to consider the vast feats that the human themselves may yet muster. The room was silent as the speaker paused to breathe. At this point, the advisors were pale with fear, as if the apocalypse had been revealed to them. Grand Commander Torda remained motionless, staring blankly into the table. The images that he saw still echoed in his eyes. The humans do not actively believe in every single pantheon, no. Nor do they attempt to force these pantheons together, the speaker continued, this time addressing the rumor. But these pantheons remained honored in their myth and sanctified in their media. The relics of rival pantheons are preserved instead of obliterated, in halls dedicated to history and the arts. And for this, these pantheons preserve to this day. While their gods, individually, are weaker than one of our own, the vast multitudes of deities that stand guard over humanity far surpasses even the combined might of the Holy League. And even with such a vast number of non-believers, their scientific and technological breakthroughs are just as much a result of the species' own innate intelligence as it is the result of divine inspiration granted to the believers. The speaker turned back to the Emperor. Your Excellency, the species is fractured and divided, and so are many different deities, but the gods wish that we do not give them a reason to unite, for they are not just a planet of a thousand gods, but of a hundred different pantheons, all of whom are unified in their fondness for their creation. The Emperor stared back at the speaker, his mind still grasping all that has been stated. He looked up from his chair, his eyes drifting onto the mural depicting the Vakerti Empire embraced by depictions of the Pantheon's gods. He knew that he had to make a decision, and that there would be no turning back from whichever choice he made. For the sake of his people, our children, I hope that he heeds our words. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1225 Story number one, How to Invade a Human Planet, written by TexWolf84, from General Sorno Mattel, Ithaca Imperial Army, to Ithaca Imperial Military High Command, CC Ithaca Imperial Senate, Office of the Empress, Office of the Emperor Heir Apparent, regarding strategies for invasion of a human-held planet. Background, I, General Ithaca, spent two decades... 
as a naval attaché on a sol system. My primary was to observe the Terran government and devise strategies to defeat humanity militarily and fold their civilian and industry into our empire. Towards that end, I was able to observe no less than 40 different conflicts in that two-decade time period. Most of those would be considered all-out war by the Imperial Army. To the humans, they were low-intensity conflicts amongst their own member states. Note, they are also referred to as police actions and were in direct response to human terrorist attacks. Human Biology Humans are from a high-gravity world, double that of Ithaca Prime. My entire time on Earth, I was required to wear a human invention called a Personal Gravity Unit, or a PGU. It encased me in an artificial gravity field, one half of the planetary standard. To invade, our entire ground force would be required to be so equipped. We do not currently have such a device in our infantry, and I find it unlikely humanity would supply them to us. This gravity means their skeletal and muscular systems are robust enough to deal with the gravity of the world. They have colonies on worlds up to three times their home system's gravity, relying on genetic enhancement to further increase the skeletal and muscular densities to match. Mechanical assistance is also possible. Exosuits are quite popular for tourists on these worlds. Humans are also known to consume potent toxins for recreation. Amongst the most common is ethyl alcohol. Yes, that industrial disinfectant. In large enough quantities, it can in fact kill them. The quantities it takes would be sufficient to poison entire battalions of our soldiers. What a human calls uh, doing shots could easily wipe out a company of our most hardened warriors. Capsaicin, the bioweapon banned by no fewer than 30 galactic treaties for use in war. The humans consume it to flavor their cuisine. They do, however, refine and concentrate it for use in less than lethal sprays. You will have read that correctly. The bioweapon so potent that a few parts per million can wipe out an entire warship is used as a flavor for their food and a way to contain riots without lethal force. Note, the food is orgasmic. Just have a med team on standby. Temperature tolerances, our brave soldiers would be unable to operate in a vast majority of the humans' cradle world. The only places on their planet they do not have permanent nations is their planet's poles. Our most robust automatons would not be able to handle the harsh cold conditions. Humans keep personnel in research stations at these locations. Likewise, their equator zones, we would be unable to keep our soldiers cool. Human Psychology I do not have enough time or expertise to speak of this, so I'll just confine this to their attitude towards warfare. Insane. That's the most accurate description. Humans have documented cases of soldiers calling down airstrikes and bombardments on their own positions. One of their most famous tales from the antiquity tell of a small force of soldiers who died, holding off a much larger force, not one of victory. It's true, not a fable to inspire, they have archaeological evidence that it did happen. Speaking of bombardments, in conflicts past, they were known to keep such attacks up for days to soften an enemy position. They have other strategies such as attritional warfare, guerrilla warfare, tank warfare, and combined arms assault, amongst others. Note, tanks in this context are armored fortresses capable of wiping out infantry units en masse. Human infantry units... 
I shudder to think what would become of our own infantry should they face one of these behemoths. Humans can survive wounds and dismemberments that would doom any Ithacan within mere moments of receiving. Humans invented surgical techniques before antimicrobial and anesthetics. I did not believe this at first. However, access to the planetary data net was provided and I was able to confirm. I also found the only known case of a doctor performing a medical procedure with a 300% mortality rate. Yes, 300%. The doctor was performing an amputation, surgical removal of a limb. Did so with such speed that the observer's heart stopped out of shock. The doctor managed to inflict a small wound upon themselves and both the doctor and the patient died of sepsis microbial infection. While on the subject, amputation, humans can take a grievous wounds that will kill any Ithacan and only lose a limb. But that does not stop a human. They have artificial replacements, sometimes literally screwed into their flesh and keep living. Surgeons routinely bolt their fellow humans back together with titanium screws. Yes, titanium it's one of the few metals that can survive years inside the human body without their immune system attacking it, and ultimately poisoning themselves. In conclusion, I was asked to devise a strategy to invade the human world. My strategy is thus. Don't! Your grateful and most loyal subject, General Sonar Mittal. End of story. Story number two. The Mayor, written by Wyvern590. The humans and their antics, at every turn they defy logic. The Council has observed them for centuries and never thought that they would make it into another world. Yet, here they are, and it's time to put them in their place. Fourteen years ago, the humans established their colony on Proxima Centauri, forcing the attention of the Council. There was no denying the cancer spreading in the galactic fringe. However, after much consideration, the Council has decided to allow their continued existence, as their physical attributes avail themselves as powerful soldiers. And so, the Vra, a pillar of the galactic economy, sent a delegation to Proxima. We are that delegation. Our mission is to coerce them into usual trade agreements that will ensure their subservience for all of time. We will talk and negotiate, but it won't matter. We have perfected economic enslavement. We will take everything from them, and we will own them. Our crews are landed on the flight pad. I feel his cold and agitation at the rough landing. The ship is a frontier vessel designed to be efficient, not comfortable. I missed my pleasure cruiser, but it couldn't make the trip, nor could it dock on the subpar human landing pad. I already despise the humans, and my contempt for them only grew as the mission progressed. We exited the ship and met with local security. Two large human males would escort us to the capital building. There is only one city, if it can be called a city, on the entire planet. And so the only political figure to meet is the mayor, a relatively low position in their government. This would only make our mission easier as they would not have the political willpower or knowledge to even think of defying us. We approached the Capitol building. Plain white painted metal, made from time, stood above the other prefabs haphazardly surrounding it. 
It was much larger than the others and clearly better maintained as the mud it sat upon had yet to stay the walls. As we enter, we are greeted by the receptionist, a much smaller male wearing plain black clothing with long hair. He was pleasing to behold, and I decided to later negotiate his transfer to my own company as a personal receptionist. He would receive a pay raise, live in a new world, benefits, everything he could ever want. At least, that's what would be written in the agreement. I undulated in excitement thinking of the pleasure my new employee would give me and continued into the waiting room. We sat on the profit seating as the security force took positions by the door. I quietly spoke with the other delegates about how best to proceed with manipulating the mayor. The others had very little knowledge about her, only knowing that she is female, and that only from the pronouns used by other humans when referring to her. However, they seemed undaunted and scarcity of information. Experience, it would seem, would be the deciding factor in this negotiation. We did not wait for long. Soon, I overheard radio chatter from the security force and they opened the door to the mayor's office, ushering us inside. We entered a small rectangular room with glossy black floor tiles and white wall paneling. A large, dark red wood desk sat approximately at the other end of the room with a panoramic view overlooking the city behind it. Across the desk, a leather office chair faced away from us. We approached, and I spoke. Greetings, Mayor of Proxima. As per our message, we are here to begin a negotiation trade with your colony. She did not respond. I could only hear the quiet rumblings of what I assume is a faulty air conditioning unit. Instead, the receptionist from before enters the office and approached the chair, turning it around. I recoiled at the sight of the strange furry creature sitting in the chair. It was hideous. My feelers shot straight out in surprise. I looked at the receptionist. What is this? She is the mayor, he stated flatly. I bit back a retort and turned to the creature, now staring at the spot just behind me. I turned to look, and there was nothing. Looking back, it had assumed a strange stance with one of its legs over its shoulder, and was now aggressively licking itself, making a disgustingly wet noise. My feelers vibrated in revulsion. She's a cat, he said, answering the unasked question. An animal holding public office. How did this happen? I asked. He shrugged. She won the election, so she became mayor. And it was a landslide election too. The last mayor, Gregory, was the only person running for office. Everyone hated him, but nobody wanted to become the next mayor. So we all wrote in Sweet Tart, his ex-wife's cat. She's been doing a pretty good job. The entire delegation was taken aback by the story. I could smell it in the pheromones. They had no idea how to proceed from here. I too was stunned, but swiftly regained my composure while the others seemed unable to find their words. Then I will make this simple human... You shall mediate our negotiations. As I stated earlier, we are here to open trade with this colony. You need only sign here, I said, pointing at the signature block. He took it and read it carefully. A few minutes later, he stated, A few minutes later, he stated, As per Article 3, Subsection A of this preface to this agreement, only a qualified public official can sign. I snatched the day slate from him, snarling angrily. He did not react. I sat the device on the desk. Then make this thing sign it, I growled. 
I'm afraid that won't be possible. As cats do not have the capability of signing anything, he responded with an infuriatingly smug look on his face. Do not lie to me, human. If that were true, how could she run this colony? I asked. I don't know how she does it, but uh, she manages, he answered. We spoke and argued for over an hour. However, we inevitably would come upon the same problem. Sweet Tart was incapable of signing the agreement. I could sense that tempers in the room were reaching a climax when she suddenly jumped onto the desk. Sauntering over to the data slate, still on the table, she crouched over it. Suddenly, the most revolting smell emanating from her, she defecated on the agreement. Well, that's, um, uh, no, he stated. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1226. Story number one. All humans are welcome in hell. Written by Mercury the Dina. She was old. She was older than the gods. Older than the stars. She was there to witness the births, deaths, and rebirths of the universe. The gods gave birth to their holy species and guided them to war and peace, to doom and prosperity, all under her watchful gaze. The gods created paradises for their faithful and honorable, so that their people would follow what the gods believed to be the right path. But none dared to make an afterlife to punish the unrighteous. But that was her domain. She was the punishment that all faced at the end. She was the master of the underworld, or hell, or whatever the gods and mortals decided to call it. The unworthy were put on her domain to suffer for eternity. Frozen tundras, near scalding deserts and pits of magma. The starless nights were broken only by the scorching blood-red sun. None would be happy here. Any moments of joy were swiftly taken by her unholy drones. For countless existences, nothing changed. Until, on a planet forgotten by gods and devils alike, a single species was cursed with sentience. Humans. They had no gods to guide them, and thus had no heaven to go to. They all came to her. She didn't care, of course. She cared not for the reason why any came to her. She only cared about making all suffer. She watched the humans as they crossed tundras and deserts, forests and blades. And then something interesting happened. They, um, they, they, they were building things. She looked closer, and indeed the humans were building huts and walls to protect themselves. She was surprised by this. Most species simply let the environment take a hold of them as their feeble minds broke under the stress of being abandoned by their gods. It didn't matter. The humans would suffer. She sent her drones to attack the camp, and soon they had dispersed. Except that now they were, uh, building again. She watched as the humans built something else using a wood from cut trees. Her drones came to attack, but as soon as they were seen, the humans all got on top of their creation and, uh, and they spit away. Yeah. The master of hell watched in awe as the feeble human construct used the winds to force itself to move against the snow and ice of the nearby tundra. They'd used her elements to beat her. Impressive. She watched the humans closely now. 
She had ordered her drones to stop chasing them since they simply could not outmaneuver the humans. She was interested in seeing their progress now. The humans seemed to notice that they were no longer being followed, and thus rebuilt their camps, this time much larger ones. They made tools and weapons, hunted and ate creatures that most species would have called monsters, collected plants and fruit that were poisonous to all but the most resilient. They thrived. The master, for the first time in untold years, smiled. She saw as new humans came to her reign and introduced their fellows to the wonders of farming and fire. She saw as they were introduced to basic metalworking. She watched as they used metal weapons to disable her drones. She saw in awe as humanity's dead built empires under the single worst plane of existence. The Remen Empire, the Greater Brazilian Technocracy, the Eighth German Reich, the United States of Russia, and countless others. She saw as Tesla and Edison brought their bickering to the afterlife. She saw as Newton and Einstein theorized together to understand the laws of her plane. She saw as Sterling and Da Vinci worked to build a giant Sterling engine in the divide between the magma ocean and the great tundra. But what impressed her the most were the walls. She had never seen such carnage in all of her infinite existence. Men and women, armed with weapons so powerful they could only exist in this plane, all marched and fought for their nations. Humans would die in the trenches of World War I and II, only to find themselves fighting yet again for the afterlife. Humans brought more suffering to themselves than she ever would. She grew to love these. No, her people more each day. They were brutal, ruthless, and primitive, but also gentle, compassionate, and intelligent. Many gods challenged humanity. Wars of conquest and extermination were declared against them. None succeeded, of course. Her people were too strong even for the gods. Many died to defend their homes and family, however. She shed no tears for the dead. She only offered them her gentle hand and greeted them to their new home. For all humans were welcome in hell. End of story. Story number two. Recommissioned, written by Algie Father Anthracite. When we found it, there was an immediate press blackout. The military came in and took over command. The object was towed to a secret military base and studied for years. I joined the program after nearly 50 annas. I was still green, right out of training when I joined. But my family had a long history of military service, and I had been deemed not a security risk. I had been stationed there for most of my career. I had worked my way through the ranks, and was now a ranking officer. A few more annums and I could retire. In the time I had been here, I had served in most of the departments, there were a few people, like me, who knew what was going on, but weren't actually involved in the research. Administrative positions, security personnel, and a few others. There was a buzz in the air on the base that day. A promising project was about to be completed, and if it paid off, the ramifications were world-changing. After all these years, we knew what it was we had found. A ship, a spaceship, 
but not one of our planet. The corridors were too short, too narrow. The controls were marked in an unknown language. We'd spent decades deciphering the language, and even more time reverse engineering the ship and all of its systems. Mapping every wire, every chip, every fuse. We learned a lot from that alone. It took dedicated teams whole careers to decipher what each component did. Even longer to decode the software that ran the ship. And now, here we were, on the verge of actually reactivating the device of Adian Origin. As the chief military liaison officer, I was standing off to one side. I was standing next to the lab's managing director and a couple of the other admin types. In the test chamber, a group of techs were scurrying around, hooking up various support devices, diagnostic tools, data recorders, and more. Today, for the first time, we would be powering up the communications device from the craft. We finally had enough knowledge to decipher how it worked, and hopefully how to interpret any messages that came across. There was a buzz in the room, which slowly died down as the final connections were made, and the final checks were completed. Wish me luck, said the lead scientist of the project. I said a silent prayer. The last switch was thrown, and the screen on the device glowed a pale blue. What we assumed were letters were scrolling across the screen. The camera recorded everything. A tank who was fluent in the alien language states that it was some sort of boot sequence. After several minutes, the boot cleared, and all that remained was a blinking cursor. Everyone sat with bated breath. The device appeared to be functioning. Proceed with the test message, the project lead said. The tech at the keyboard laboriously typed out a message. Is anyone there? In glowing blue letters. The tech inhaled deeply, holding it in. He hit the return key. Sensors and data recorders started to scream as massive amounts of data nearly overwhelmed them. The message moved from the bottom to the top of the screen. The cursor sat, blinking endlessly for what felt like hours. After ceremony cycles, letters began to crawl across the screen. Unknown signal, please advise call sign. I think they want us to identify the ship, sir, said the tech. What should I tell them? Makes sense. We retire comms data every few annums. The one from the ship is probably long expired, I said, being familiar with the communication protocols we used. Should we tell them that we found their ship and ask where to find the call sign? Do it! We don't want to give them waiting, I said. As the chief military liaison, it was my call. Relaying message, sir, the tech began to type. After several messages back and forth, we were stalling for time, trying to find the call signs that they were looking for. Someone had pulled up a database of images. On one of the hull plates was a string of numbers and letters that we had never been able to decode. We decided to try it. If we were right, we could progress the dialogue. If we were wrong, we bought more time. XP-05A, please hold the line. After a few minutes, the terminal started to tick letters across the screen. Please identify who this is. That ship has been missing for nearly 300 years. What colony are you on? Sir, what do we tell them? All eyes turned to me. Tell them the truth. It's not likely that they can do anything but cut us off. It's either that or open communications between us, I said. I'd been briefed by command how to proceed, and it was decided that lying was no way to open communication with a more technologically advanced civilization. We found your ship floating through our system when it passed between a stellar camera and our sun. 
That was 80 solar rotations ago. We have no colony worlds. Greetings from Dorine. The terminal blinked blue for another eternity. Finally, it started moving again. Greetings from Earth. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1227. Story number one. Red Cross, written by Alex143. Inside the Galactic Assembly Chamber, a previously injured Tranian soldier walked towards the podium. He would now testify against humanity if war crimes had been committed following the end of another conflict. Please state your name and division, the security general asked the soldier. Soldier Inan of the second colonial defense team of Glenny, replied the soldier, trying to stay as professional as possible. I understand that you were a prisoner of war, am I correct? inquired the secretary general. Prisoners of war were famously mistreated, as they were not subject to standard galactic requirements of fundamental sentient rights. Instead, it was only required that they be given food, water, and a cell that was at least four meters cubed, to minimize the drain on resources needed for the war. Some nations would often forego these rights in order to preserve even more resources and choose to execute all prisoners once the war ended though their deaths were always reported as accidents. This made any living POWs extremely valuable to political opponents. Yes, sir, you are correct. Very well. Can you please describe your experience as a prisoner of war? The Terran government was not without opposition. Immediately after the Secretary General voiced the question, ears perked up and eyes became more focused on the ex-POW. I was stationed at one of the border systems in the Trenian Empire, a few weeks after the Emperor declared war. The Terran's rapid deployment force used orbital bombardment on every major military installation on the planet before they landed. The division I was in, the second colonial defense team, was pinned down near a canyon. Terrifying blasts of Terran artillery echoed in the night sky. It was a slaughter. Men fell down in useless strobes like useless cannon fodder in hopeless battle. Our division commander, realizing all hope was lost, ordered us to lay down arms and surrender. Those who refused were mercilessly cut down as Terran infantry moved ever closer to our position. I have heard of rumors of shocking things the Terran army will do to those who surrender. Stories like humans eating us plant eaters alive in magnificent feasts or torturing us men for fun. I uh, naturally feared the worst. I feared that the good woman of the Empire would be assaulted, cities pillaged, and men executed, and that I could only watch. I was sorely mistaken. A wave of disappointment could be felt throughout the building as humanity's rivals lost what could have been significant political leverage. Inan continued. The Terran soldiers talked into their radio transmitters and asked for my name. Hours later, we were lined up and brought into a ship with a red cross on either side. I wondered if this was the place where I'd be tortured with chemicals until I broke, just for their entertainment, when my turn came. I sat on the chair next to me and noticed syringes, scissors, knives, and much more equipment. I began preparing for the worst. The doctor introduced himself to me. To my great surprise, started treating me. An enemy and administered expensive medication to ensure that I didn't get infected. 
They even let our medics and doctors go free before they administered vaccines to our populace. We expected the vaccines to be some cruel trick, but we later learned the truth. This seemingly preposterous act left even our colony governor baffled, as no other race had done anything like this before. I was ushered on board a prison transport ship before heading to my new home that I'd be staying in for the next year. Yet still, I saw that red cross. Personnel wearing those armbands frequently asked if I had any discontent with my housing. They asked if I was sufficiently fed. The BOW camp gave me more food per serving than the Empire used to provide me within a day. When I expressed discontent with the size of my cell, I was transferred to a larger one only days later. I grew to learn that those Red Crosses were more than just emblems on armbands. They were the Red Cross, a symbol of compassion amongst the Jareds. When a guard beat me half to death, the men wearing the Red Cross heard about it, and the guard was dishonorably discharged. Everything I saw showed me little pieces of what that meant. But the true revelation, however, was the letters. It was there that I found out my family was allowed to send letters to me. I saw images of my sisters going to the beach. I even saw pictures of my newborn that was due a mere month after I was captured. She would be in kindergarten when I saw her with my own eyes for the first time. Once I was a free man, the Terran government even gave me monetary compensation for that beating. They gave me the education I never thought that I would receive as a citizen of the Empire. Nowadays, I look forward to going to the University of Kohar under the fully paid scholarship. Thanks to the Terran reforms, the Secretary General grudgingly thanked Anon for sharing his story before Galactic Assembly Guards escorted Anon back to the spaceport. Yet another conflict had ended in Terra's favor, and this time, the Assembly had unknowingly faced their most potent weapon, compassion. End of story. Story number two. The Zoo, written by Digital 332006. Senior observation technician Takot read the readings thrice, still in disbelief. Sir, you need to come and check this. Four of the animals in the 621E Zoo have escaped their enclosure. His supervisor lifted his head from his office, not bothering to get up. Hmm, dispatch a team, get them back on the continent that they need to be on. No, sir, we don't understand. They've left the planet. His manager slammed his trunk on the desk and stood up. What? Get it on the screen, now! Tagat transferred the secondary camera from the observation station to the main display, showing a small metal craft floating in space, heading outside the solar system. What should we do? asked Tagat. Nothing in the manual had ever elaborated about a situation like this. I am not sure, but we can't have them leave. Think of the ratings! The general manager, Lethus, began sweating nervously. Zoo 621E was a bread and butter for the Waverian Corporation. If the species of the zoo began leaving it, people would stop tuning in and the Waverian would go bankrupt. They had invested a lot of capital in seeding life on the planet, plus the time for it to grow. There is no choice. He looked over to one of his staff members. Prepare my shuttle. I'll go try and raise it with them. Emily Richards looked over at the sensor readings, checking for any change. 
There'd been a small spike in energy readings a few minutes ago, and she couldn't pinpoint it. Looking around outside the spaceship, she saw nothing. She decided to try something else, an active sonar ping. It was a long shot for sure, but if there was something there and it was invisible due to light refraction, the physical aspects of it would reply back with an echo. She hit the button. The specifically modified for space use sonar sent out its vibrations using the tiny molecules of rocks, water, and various tiny objects to litter space to create a wave. Reading the sensors which were translating that information into something usable, she gasped. There was a large empty spot right next to their ship, merely a few kilometers away. She waited for a few minutes, the ship moving before trying again to confirm the results. The empty space had followed them, keeping the same relative distance. She hurried to the captain with the news. Lethus watched with curiosity the alien ship, keeping a safe distance. How they created a spacefaring ship so quickly astonished him. It's true that the actual time was different when they observed 621E from their home planet in the Carina constellation, but to think that they'd have spaceships while the camera still had them fiddling with rocks and fire. The strange ship stopped and so did Lethus, wondering what they were doing now. They weren't yet outside the solar system, so he had no legal authority to do anything. He was trying to think of a way to get them to go back, but had trouble thinking of something that would work. The stopped ship began shining its lights in his direction, and he moved to the other side to avoid them. Strangely, the ship rotated and kept shining lights at him, the frequency changing every so often. Had they found him, his ship's cloak should have made him invisible to them. This time, he backed away a bit, and was surprised when the alien ship closed the gap, keeping the same relative distance as before. He sighed knowing that we now have to make contact with them, but not knowing how to proceed. Gently, he maneuvered his ship towards them as he deactivated his cloak. He positioned his airlock with what looked like the alien's one and proceeded to dock. He did ponder what species finally managed to get ahead technologically. Was it the dolphins? Perhaps it was the elephants. That would have made him happy. When the doors opened, he was quite startled to see the apes. The next few days flew by rather fast, with the apes working to teach him their language. They had not been shocked as he would have thought them of his appearance, which he appreciated. The crash course in English had been well designed, however, having him able to string along short sentences soon after. They asked many questions, which he tried to answer with his rudimentary grasp of what they called English. As soon as he felt he could express his thoughts well enough, he tried to reason. You must go back. I'm in danger of losing my job. If my bosses will have my head, please help me out here, he said, folding his hands together, pleading. The humans, or so they called themselves, took a moment to confer with each other. They seemed to be much more serious when they previously dealt with him and returned to talk after a few moments. We understand. We go back. We help. They said that, and he nearly cried of joy and thanked them profusely, getting back on his ship. Lethus' shoulders slumped, a heavy weight lifted from them. All that was left to do was write a report and try putting some filler material or rerun an episode when this moment in time would be live, something his successor would do eventually. For 18 years, everything went splendidly, ratings were high and life was good for Lethus. 
Only two more years and he would finally retire. He sat in his chair looking at the current diffusion. Some large part triangle structures were being built by an ape-like species. He chuckled, remembering a previous encounter and how he'd handled it. Boss, come here, right now, screamed a new senior observation technician. Tarkot, having retired a few years ago. Lethus strolled over to the small office and the technician to see what was going wrong. On the screen was Zoo 621E and his heart dropped in the pit of his stomach. Zooming out, he saw that he must have been a full armada, hundreds upon hundreds of ships leaving the planet's orbit. They're also broadcasting a message. Let me put it up, added the technician. Do not fear any longer, Lethasians. Humanity answers your call. We have come to help. End of story. 1228. Story number one. We may have fact up. Written by Simone Angela. My name is Erica. I am a scientist in service of the Galactic Union Exploratory Fleet. And today marks the beginning of lab tests in the first contact protocol procedure that has been in effect ever since we stumbled on these jumped-up primates. The humans are pretty standard race. Two legs, two arms, one head and five or six senses. Forward-facing eyes, olfactory organ in the middle of their face, and a standard omnimal mouth complemented the image of an absolutely average-looking species. Lacking enough sexual dimorphism to be of true note beyond obviously secondary sexual characteristics. The tests were designed to push the newly contacted species limits to ascertain the risks of annexing or simply the compatibility with the rest of the Galactic Union. After all, the species whose mind can be shattered by the barest psychic touch is ill-adjusted for modern society. The tests are conducted by a big gym-like room to avoid excessive stress induced by being alone with a full room of aliens studying you to skew the results. But it seems that we might have underestimated the sheer sociality of the humans. The endurance tests were performed at the same time, and this apparently sparked an impromptu competition between the subjects. The results were astonishing. The less physically fit subjects lasted pretty long, reaching five minutes of sustained run at a sedate pace, roughly an average for non-professional athletes of most species. While other more fit subjects lasted upwards of ten minutes, with the best lasting an incredible one hour and fifty minutes. Granted, the subject's history suggested that her morning routine lasted forty-five minutes, so the result was not entirely unexpected. But this result certainly raised our expectations for the humans in the physical department. It was pretty clear that they had absolutely no talent in the arcade, as every ounce of potential was poured into the physical body. It also was an almost predictable result, as the entire sector around the humans was devoid of any arcane energy. So, we were expecting some strange quirk of evolution due to the environment, but nothing this extreme. The rest of the physical tests were conducted in a similar atmosphere as the first, the awe at seeing records casually shattered, not a thing easily concealed. The true problem sprung up when we began testing for arcane talent. It was obvious for us that what the results would be. But protocol was protocol, and they were the last test for a reason. The arcane was a parallel dimension overlapping our own, filled to the brim with unstable arcane energy. 
that was harnessed by a talented few to shape reality and bend physics. Now, to understand the insanity that went down that day, I have to clarify something. The arcane or psychic energy, as it is called by some, is an intrinsic part of modern society. Almost anyone has at least enough arcane talents to brush a psychic body of nearby sapiens, and it is a fact considered by many to be rude to not do that, as it adds truthfulness and trust to the conversation. It is something often done automatically, and something that me and my colleagues had to consciously refrain from doing with the humans. The most basic arcane talent test involved an arcanist to connect their mind to the subject, to verify the presence of the connection that would be necessary for even the lowest form of arcane manipulation, the brushing that I was talking about earlier. The result of the first test was completely unexpected. The humans had a yes, a connection to the arcane, but no arcane energy seemed to flow. Their mind space was completely devoid of arcane energy, but there was a strange secondary connection that seemed to go everywhere and nowhere at the same time that made us pause. The procedure for the situation was to test the reaction to an influx of arcane energy, but the secondary connection made us wary. Was it the true reason behind the absolute absence of arcane energy in the humans? Was it something related to their bodies? The hesitation must have been more than clear because the subjects began to grow agitated with our conferring over the results. Doc, is everything all right? Uh, these dudes didn't give me an instant brain cancer or something, right? Mike, the current subject, said, looking worriedly to the huddle of nerds to the side of him, conferring over a screen. What? Oh no, don't worry, humans. Arcane energy does not affect sapient minds and bodies. They are protected by the very connection that allows the arcane to be channeled. We were merely puzzled by your species' apparent lack of ability to utilize arcane even in the presence of such a sturdy-looking connection. I responded quickly, batting down the coat that was ruffled in a group huddle that followed the strange observation. In fact, it seems like you have a second connection, though we don't have the faintest idea where. I continued, quite embarrassed at this point for our evident lack of conclusion. <sighs> muttered Mike. I guess even alien scientists don't have all the answers. The preparation for the arcane contact test was minimal, requiring only the arcanist and the subject to hold hands, and for the arcanist, a bit of concentration. The result was so outside of the expectations that it took us a good three hours to understand what happened, and a couple more to come to terms with it. You see, humans apparently are a peculiar type of hive mind. They have a single psychic body shared with every human alive, and independent mind spaces kind of like a billion-headed hydra. The terrifying result of this is an almost omnipotent being, deprived of one thing it needed to exert its influence on our reality by its birth that drained the entire sector of arcane energy to form itself from the psychic bodies of the then barely sentient humans. This isolation from the arcane allowed the humans to live quietly up until now. But this contact that was made then unlocked something inside of them as the sector is now incredibly dense in Arcade, second only to the sector in Sagittarian A. It has been three local days now. At the humans. When we arrived, they were on the cusp of interplanetary colonization. Now, it's a three-kilometer-thick ring around Terra, and they apparently merged more with their psychic body, achieving a state of near-species-wide comprehension. I'm sure now that we've fecked up.
End of story. Story number two. Living Furnace, written by Ozzy Endeavor. My name is Adric Ogon. I have been assigned to a mission to explore a planet on the verge of the known galaxy. The planet's nickname is Frozen Heart, as the whole planet is apparently a frozen waste so ungodly cold that no intelligent life could ever have a chance to survive. Yet, uh, for some reason, the higher-ups seem to think that it is worth analyzing. My partner on this mission is a reptilian alien named Galanto. He reminds me of a large frilled necked lizard from back on Earth, though he is still only half my size. We only met when we were being put onto the shuttle that would take us to the planet and return us to the main ship. By now, we sit in silence, Galanta double and triple checking he has everything he needs, even though several others already did just that before we left. We both have a lot of equipment. I'm carrying basically everything that'll allow us to do research, while he seems to be carrying a lot of things required for survival. Or rather, his survival. I barely recognize any of the devices or gadgets that he's spreading over, so I just assume his species is more fragile than humanity. We are still relatively new to the galactic stage. I wouldn't be surprised if there were many things our species still didn't know about each other. When the shuttle finally reaches the planet's surface, we put on the suits that'll help us preserve against the harsh climate until we are able to set up a base with what is in the shuttle's storage. As I finally step foot onto the frigid plains, I look upwards and see a thick cloud obscuring the entire sky. So, that is it, the frozen heart. He walks onto the snow with his snugly covered tail, leaving a long streak behind him. Yeah, we should try and set up base as soon as we can. I look back for a response, only to see him gawking at the ground. Um, hello? Are you okay? Oh, why, oh, yes, uh, yes, uh, I'm fine, S sorry, uh, it's just, uh, I, I never thought that I'd get to all of this. Sure, it's beautiful, but it just looks like winter back home. Honestly, for something called Frozen Heart, I expected something harsher than this. While we got everything set up, Galanta seemed to get more and more nervous with time. Just like in the shuttle, he triple-checked everything that we did. Every once in a while, he'd excused himself and went to use one of the gadgets that he brought here. It was some sort of machine that connected to his suit, apparently charging it up. Though for what, I wasn't sure. It made me notice how complex his suit was compared to mine. His looked close to an old spacesuit, while mine was basically a glorified winter jacket. What's your species called again? Four. Why do you ask? I was just wondering why your suit and stuff is so much more complicated than mine. What? He seemed confused, then seemed to focus on what I was wearing. Wait, holy crap, is your face exposed? He freaked out, running up to me and grabbing my arms before dragging me into the shuttle and closing the airlock. What the hell was that for? I ripped my arm away from his, to him looking mortified. Are you okay? Your face was exposed to the air. No crap, genius, it's been like this the whole time we've been outside. It has? Then how the hell are you not dead? I am not dead because it's just a bit cold air. Can't be much more than uh, minus five or something. I expected the planet to be colder, but here we are. 
He sits down and puts his snout in his hands. How the hell can this be possible? How can you say that like it's nothing? That's when it dawns me. I almost laugh at the situation. He's a reptile, after all. Thanks for being concerned, but you don't need to worry about me. Now, let's get back to setting stuff up before nightfall. With that, I walk out into the cold. Right, uh, okay. We managed to get everything up and running just before the temperature started to drop rapidly and head inside our little base. We start organizing everything. What we'll do tomorrow, what we'll collect and inspect, where we'll go, things like that. After a long day of work, I decide to go to bed early. We'll start at first light after all. Before long, I'm jolted awake by Galanta. He's freaking out again. What is? Something's wrong. Very wrong. The temperature in the base is plummeting and I don't think the heating system in the sleeping quarters is going to last much longer. Have you figured out what's wrong yet? Can we fix it? I have no idea. I was so thorough with my inspections. Calm down. We'll figure this out. Says the mister I can survive negative temperatures. Fair. But that's no reason to lose your head. If we can't figure out what's going wrong, then it's probably safest to stay the night in the shuttle. But as soon as the doors open, the heat will escape. It's our only option. We'll have to be quick. So with that, we exit the sleeping quarters and then immediately hit in the face by a blast of cold air. I get used to it, though. We need to get to the shuttle. When we're there, we open up the door and close it behind us as soon as we can. What is the temperature inside here? It's... God damn it, it's 7 degrees Celsius. Is that bad for you? Of course it's bad. If I can't charge up my suit and refill my oxygen, I'll be done for. He falls to the ground, defeated. I looked around the small shuttle, trying to find anything that could help. Jackpot, a thick blanket. It was probably packed for me, but I never needed it. Before I can say anything, his suit begins to beep furiously. He starts to really freak out. No, 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 please, please don't. He begs his suit, but to no avail. Calm down and take it off before it runs out of oxygen. Where are you not listening to me? It's seven degrees Celsius. I take off my jacket and approach him with the blanket. I'm warm-blooded. My body gives off heat. You'll be okay. Just take off your suit and trust me. He hesitates, but the furious beeping only becomes worse. Okay, I trust you, Adric. He breathes once in and out before taking off the helmet. The reaction is immediate and he tenses up before he's able to do anything else. I have to help him out of his suit, almost tearing it while I wrap him and myself in the blanket. As soon as his scales makes contact with my skin, his instincts take a hold and he tries to get as close to the warmth as he can. The small amount of time it takes for the blanket to trap enough heat is tense as I worry it was too late. But eventually... He begins to warm up. He looks up at me with glistening eyes. Thank you. It's okay. You're gonna be just fine. You're like a living furnace. Humans are nice. He looked so helpless like this. The only thing standing between him and a frozen death is a piece of fabric myself. We stay awake all night. I need to make sure that he stays warm enough, so I don't dare separate from him for even a moment. I finally manage to hold on to him in a way where I can walk around while keeping him covered fully in the blanket and call for help. When we are taken back to the ship, Galanta has immediately rushed to the med bay to make sure that his cold didn't damage anything. I, on the other hand, let the higher-ups know how ridiculously idiotic it is to send someone who is cold-blooded to an ice planet. Their reasoning 
I was the only human available, and it was a two-person job. Let's say the crew immediately requested more humans to be hired. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1229. Story number one. The Best Revenge, written by Ender's Game 69. So, what does the doll look like? Resident Tandy asked from within the ruins of the Oval Office. He dusted off debris from his suit, and Dirt poofed away to briefly hang in the sunbeams that shone through the many holes in the wall. Globally or just the United States, sir? The General asked. Both. The answer was decisive and instant. The General cleared his throat and brushed aside the debris that had fallen from above to land on his papers. The United States suffered 200 million dead, with most of the casualties being in large cities, but large parts of the lighter populations were hit too. If you want the truth, Mr. President, the toll could be as high as 225 million. We just don't have the full picture yet. As far as the world, out of 7.8 billion people, the global population has been reduced to an estimated 1.2 billion. The general looked up at the president. The president seemed to age before his eyes, his color gray and his eyes clouding over for a moment. My God, but what about the interlopers? Gone. Some ships fled, the rest were killed. The aliens are gone, but I don't need to remind you. Starvation, malnutrition, the war against the aliens begins. But the war against our own world's attempt to finish us off. That is uh, just beginning, the general answered, and the president looked down at one of the few Pentagon survivors. I know, general, I know. But this isn't over. All mankind is descended from the survivors in the struggle for life. And we will win the struggle, too. Humanity will have to come together as never before. Thankfully, the interlopers didn't properly understand us. And a great deal here remains untouched outside of the populated zones and the seas. We'll start over. We'll use our own technology to help us. We'll reach for the stars again. And, if not in my lifetime, or the lifetime of my sons and daughters, then in the lifetime of their children, we will go looking for the ones who did this to us. We will rebuild, and we will make them pay. End of story. Story number two. Operation Tin Cup, written by Skull Bomb Raging. It was a couple decades ago now, but humanity was enslaved by an alien force called the Hegemony of Astrius. We were absolutely not ready for any such war, and we tried, but it didn't work out. There's a rumor going round that there's some humans on the outside biding their time and waiting for some sort of opening to counterattack. But those of us in the pit consider that... Hogwash. All right, you don't know about it. Uh, the pit is a big-ass space prison all of humanity is stuck in. The trouble, other than the most obvious trouble being in the massive prison, started after a particularly pessimistic inmate decided to invoke some good old comedy to pass the time. You see, Operation Tin Cup is a joke about an old practice of using a tin cup on one's jail bars to make noise usually in order to escape the infinite boredom of being locked up in the slammer. How it was used tending to be something along the lines of 
the next step in Operation Tin Cup is going to ourselves and having a nourishing meal. Or, Operation Tin Cup demands that we go to the yard on time. Maybe it was the way that we said it. Whatever the reason, after the Operation Tin Cup started catching on, we started getting more inspections, stricter timetables, the works. The problem with that is, we just did what we always had done, and so we never got penalties except in rare cases that would be explained by other things. Now, we didn't understand what was happening at the time, so we just kept saying the joke. As time went by, the guards started to get more and more agitated. The higher-ranking officers started to yell more, and the warden added a constantly annoyed expression to his face. At this point, Operation Tin Cup had already died down as a joke, and we came up with something else to bide our time with. Then it happened. Random individuals started getting punished for the smallest infractions, and they started to interrogate us about where we'd been and who we'd worked for. Didn't make any sense until a particularly pessimistic inmate was taken in for questioning. Apparently, it clicked in his head when they got desperate and asked him, who is in charge of Operation Tin Cup? He even tried to explain that it was a joke, but each time he did, they called him a liar and tortured him. So he made up a name of some faraway military general from the secret operations branch, who he named Michael Jarhead. After he told us the story, we all decided to bring the joke back just to screw with our alien oppressors. A few of the more creative types even started passing out random codes for us to add to the regular conversation. We all silently decided that we would make something up each time they really pressed us for information, and even started to form a number of cannons for Operation Tin Can. According to the story we came up with, Michael Jarhead was the commander of the Battle of the Caribbean Sea. He saw that he couldn't win against the hegemony forces, so he came up with a plan called Operation Tin Cup. Yes, where there are some conflicting accounts, shall we say. Some swear that he only told his lover or lovers the identity of which changed with every tunning. Others claim he told all of his most trusted advisors, either of which spread the word about the plan to the rest of humanity. While we were doing this, we didn't even consider what happened next as possible. We just thought that it was hilarious to stress out the hegemony as much as we could. This is part where I finally show up in the story. I was in a particularly good mood after having been told about the newest adventure of Michael Jarhead and how he secretly founded the Marine Corps. One of the hegemony guardsmen thought that they made me a spy and so began an impromptu questioning. I still remember exactly what he said. You, inmate 56, come here now. I tried to hide my smile and get serious, but I just kept thinking about the part of the story where Michael Jarhead tamed a bunch of unicorns and rode them into battle. Yes, sir. Did Michael Jarhead send you a new message? I tried not to crank up any more than I really was. No, sir, uh, nothing new. You did get a new message. What did it say? The guard accused. I was in the middle of trying to figure out what whether to pretend to be concerned or pretend to withhold information. When his rifle butt interrupted me. His partner moved in to control the crowd. Now, inmate 56, not later. My smile was gone. I don't know anything, and I'm definitely not in the mood to talk, even if I did. The guard was enraged and started to beat me with the butt of his gun repeatedly. 
All I could think about was how I wanted him to stop. I grabbed the gun out of his hands. Everybody in the room stared. The guard and I stared at each other, and everyone else stared at the rifle that was now in my hands. I pulled the trigger, getting the guardsman instantly. The guard's partner tried to swing around to shoot me, but was ganged up on and beat to death in moments. It still hadn't sunk in at that moment, which is probably why I yelled the following at the top of my lungs. Operation Tin Cuff is a go! I and other individuals started gunning down guardsmen with a mob carrying any weapon they could find. A number of burly men used the previous and continuing guardsmen as shields as we popped over them to shoot. Eventually, we started to gain momentum, accruing lots of guns, lots of shields, and more and more inmates who joined the fight. Then, the warden made an announcement over the intercoms. Operation Tinkup NCA humans released the anti-ant personnel suppression drones. Those drones of theirs were the reason we lost the war. The stupid things could rip through anything that we had in moments, and they had enough of them to outnumber us due to one. They dropped from the ceiling and spun up their guns. We all thought that it was the end. But nothing happened. When we opened our eyes, we realized that those guys from before were still holding the guardsmen and concluded that the drones must have had an anti-friendly fire system. Someone in the crowd yelled a very well-timed reference, Step for the winged beast! We shot those stupid things to pieces. It felt so good. Out of what could only be described as the dumbest possible strategy, the warden turned off that anti-friendly fire mechanism, and the drones started to do their work for us. Of course, we had the out-of-control drones to worry about as well, but the fact that the hegemony guardsmen had to fight a lot of them and actually knew how to destroy them definitely helped a good deal. It was a struggle, and some moments got very touch-and-go, but we managed to make our way through to the warden's office where we managed to get him to accept surrender. The Spartha was probably the funniest thing during the whole debacle. Please, I have to know. How did Michael Jarhead message you while you were in prison? How jamming systems are state-of-the-art. We all collectively laughed at him, but I got the pleasure of answering. He didn't. We just knew what to do. About a week later, those humans that were secretly left behind that nobody believed existed brought a bunch of alien freedom fighters with them to try and liberate the prison. They had a good laugh when we told them what happened. As to the legacy of Mr. Michael Jarhead, we erected a statue of him riding a unicorn in Times Square. It was only fair after he defeated the hegemony with his brilliant plan, after all. N of story. Tales from Outer Space 1230. Story number two. Peaceful or harmless, written by PM451. Declare war of conquest and extinction against your entire civilization, your allies, and those who support you. The alien general thundered across the negotiating table. The spines of his cranial dorsal ridge raised in threat. Ah, okay, uh, that's your final decision, is it? The human ambassador asked. Are you sure you guys don't want to take some time to reconsider? We do not. You pathetic, flat-footed, weak-clawed, peace-loving cowards. The alien general sneered as he stood, raised his sharp claws slid from the end of his paws. Not once since your emergence into the galactic affairs have you raised so much as a blade against another race. Not once, agreed the ambassador amendably. 
And yet you confidently strut about the galaxy like a strutting confident animal. The translator gave a small, apologetic shrug. You will be put in your rightful place, beginning... His eyes narrowed immediately. His aide stopped forward beside him, crawl similarly bared. Immediately, you say, the ambassador replied, turning to one of her own aides and raising a quizzical eyebrow. Her senior aide shrugged and lifted a heavy black bag onto their end of the negotiating table. We shall tear open your soft bodies and feast on the entrails, broadcast to all the planets as a warning to your kind of what is coming. His vicious fangs dripped with saliva. Well, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's a damn shame, she said brightly, her frowning expression showing her deep concern. Don't you think, Mr. Williams? A damn shame, Madam Ambassador, he replied, sighing and shaking his head sadly as he pulled metal objects out of the bag and handed them around to other staff. Isn't that right, Mr. Manister? He asked in turn, now handing out a second type of metal object, slotting the second part into the body of the first and putting back of the lever. The aforementioned Mr. Bannister could only agree, Hey, damn, damn shame, sure. Repeating Mr. Bannister's action with their own metal parts, the other staff variously gave their own opinions on what kind of a shame it was, and exactly... How damned. A young woman who had been using a communication device behind them leaned forward. Ambassador, I've informed the High Admiral of the situation. And his response, he said, and I quote, That's a damn shame, she replied. Hmm, a damn shame, agreed the ambassador. Damn, damn shame, shared the others. Pausing momentarily to watch him, the alien general was suddenly of the impression that the humans weren't taking this seriously at all. Walking back to the ship, the ambassador genuinely frowned. That was unpleasant, she said. I was hoping they'd just posture for a bit, then negotiate. Disappointing, actually, Williams replied. They really brought nothing more than claws to a gunfight. And teeth, noticed a small Tari translator, bearing his own. Grr, much fangs, very exciting. He seemed thrilled with the whole thing. The small alien was fluent in English, of course and a dozen other Earth languages on top of countless alien ones, and he spoke flawlessly when he translated. But, like others of his kind, he insisted on only speaking in broken English when off the clock. Tradition, they claimed. Like movies, small friendly aliens should sound like small friendly alien. Comic relief, good stuff, hmm? Don't forget those head spikes, added Bannister, ignoring the Tari. He held up his right arm where a bandage covered the area where his spine had gotten under the slash-resistant armored sleeve of his elegant suit jacket. They're poisonous if you haven't had the right shots. It would help, Mr. Bannister. The ambassador shot him a withering glare. If you didn't leap into the middle of a pack of them screaming, Leroy Jenkins! I mean, why? They had the right shots, he grinned. Very exciting, repeated Tari. Bouncing with a second-hand adrenaline, grinning from ear to ear. Like movie, better than movie. He considered for a moment. Immersive. The ambassador looked down at him. Like other species, the Tari had thrived under humanity's influence, changing from beaten-down puppies to excited... Well, puppies. You are the weirdest of the weird bunch, little man. It's why we like you. End of story. Story number one. We would like to formally invite you to war. Written by Storm the Castle.
General Lee Daniels, military representative for the United States, exchanged a sidelong glance with his Russian equivalent, General Sveslotskinsk, and found essentially the same questioning being directed back at him. The fact did he just say? Do you, uh, he began slowly, not even bothering to let the lawyers and politicians have say in this matter. This was his house, after all. Maybe, uh, wanna run that by me again? The tall, forearm blue alien, male from what he could tell, but there was no real distinguishing marks between the five or six present. Even the guards that they'd brought nodded and politely repeated his statement. The Clenefar conglomerate of worlds would like to formally invite humanity to a war, he reiterated. There was a snort somewhere in the rear, but the general, rather than mirth, felt nothing but the kind of overwhelming disdain one feels when trying to explain the negative effects of slavery to someone who simply wasn't having it. General Daniels himself was beat to the chase by the French counterpart, General Albert, the tea is freaking silent, Le Breve. Oh, so we did hear you, his eyes narrowed. Now explain why. The tall prick didn't seem to sense anything wrong with the dramatically shifting atmosphere, and happily expounded on his statement. Just a formality, we assure you, he said. Our people have boasted the most robust streak of victories in living galactic memory. That was about to change really fecking fast, and yet there is no known conflict involving humans. Well, this isn't unheard of for an intelligent races. It is considered somewhat classic a faux pas. To those of us who have earned the title a death race, a title that you boasted upon your first contact with the overarching community, through war and conquest. He, no, war starts with mentality. It reached behind itself and produced a pamphlet. We have taken the opportunity to prepare a list of rules of engagement to be honored between all participants, as well as a schedule and exchange agreement and fair armistice for the conclusion. It handed the pamphlet to the UN representative politely. Please feel free to review and make any changes as you feel appropriate. Oh, but please recognize our people's needs as you do. General Daniel stepped forward, gingerly picked up the pamphlet off the representative's table, and began thumbing through it. And as soon as he saw words like holidays and dietary considerations of the opposition, he handed it to the others. He was done, and he already knew what would be happening. All right, I just want to be clear first. Please define a standard war on the intergalactic stage. Happy to, it said, turning about, the being gestured to another of its party, one with a sharper, bulkier uniform. A soldier, if ever one existed on their planet. Commander. The other one nodded and stepped forward, exchanging places fluidly with his counterpart. Walls are generally on a galactic scale between four torders, what equates to around six months to humans, and six tiles or two centuries. Both parties agree on a starting position and time, and the challenge party has allowed the terms of engagement, either in space or planet side. They are started for the variety of reasons, as I'm sure that you are aware. From trade disputes to racial tensions, and sometimes even require mediation to remain civil. Another start. Remove that man, ordered Daniels, then gestured for it to continue once a pair of MPs escorted a lawyer out of the room. Thank you. As I was saying, ours will be a minor war, more of a welcoming party really, and we don't expect it to take longer than three torters at best. It shrugged nonchalantly, 
Some martial engagements, we believe you prefer ground combat, and a few flags planted, and that's it. Treat the injured, pay for the damages, and everyone goes home happy. Holy crap, is that the definition of laser tag, or am I going senile? Arch-General Slutskinsks, General Daniels, who had gotten into more than a few fistfights during laser tag, didn't disagree, but continued by addressing the Klenafar delegates. I see, uh, did you perchance do any research on our definition of war before your arrival? He asked. The odd-seeming question clearly was on one that they weren't expecting. N -n no Why? Does the word mean something different here? Asked one of the its. General Daniels grinned, wide and mean, and made an offer. I see, a cultural difference, nothing too much to worry about, but how about this? He held up a finger, as though the idea had just come to him, as though he hadn't come up with it the moment he'd seen minimum casualties in the pamphlet. What say you get some crash course researching? You watch three human movies we here feel best depict war, and then we'll review your proposal. Unless, of course, any here object. He turned to his co-workers, and while none of the loyalists seemed bored, the various generals all had the same shit-eating grin on their faces as he did. The Klanarfa rep from before, clearly as contextually aware as cardboard, clapped happily and said, Oh, what a wonderful idea. We'll have to remember it for next time. Of course we agree. I'm authorized by the Prime to mediate the war in all facets. The generals, all six, gathered around like a schoolchildren and drew straws to choose who would get to pick the movies. The winning nations were Japan, Russia, and France. But Sivay surrendered his to Lee, saying, Make me proud, bring me a scotch. Sixteen hours later, the movies chosen were a pair of classics and a documentary. It took about a minute for Saving Private Ryan to change the color of the visitors from blue to everything but, and Au Revoir Les Enfants didn't let up in the slightest. Yamada, the wily feck, chose to blow for blow, three-hour reconstruction of the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and its effects. Telling Daniels afterwards, there was either this or the reconstruction of Shiriyama, which he felt was going to be too far back, but kind of regretted it now. When the big moment finally came for the first bomb to fall, Daniels couldn't help it. He leaned in close to the Klanatha and whispered the chorus of, Here comes the sun, do-do-do-do-do, in his ears, only for the nuclear flash to rip out a moment later. When the documentary finally ended and the most pregnant, terrified silence he's ever been a part of reigned over the delegates, the surrounded delegates, Daniels gave the signal to survey for his role. The booming, terribly scarred Russian stood up in the best humor Lee had ever seen him and asked, Feck it! Let's make it a movie day! Anyone up for something a little more adult? The its huddled together in fear, unable to form anything close to a comprehensible language, only for Daniels to cut in and say, Afraid, Doctor, though the lawyers and politicos just finished their agreement document, we'll have a war to get ready for. Sheer terror. The polite war ended in a week with a series of non-lethal matches. Humanity's victories was overwhelmingly one-sided. Human cinema was now also banned anywhere outside of human-controlled territory. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1231 Story number one. My first human, written by Algie Father Anthracite. In all the spiral arm, there is only one constant. That constant was humans. No matter what environment, no matter what the job, 
humans were a constant in known space. Of every known species, humans were widely considered the most outgoing, curious, and friendly. At least off-planet Earth. All the ones still on Earth were friendly enough, but the explorers and extreme extroverts had gone out to space. This had left strange rumors and myths emerging about humans. If you went to any bar, cafe, or gathering spot, you could listen to the Sofans exchange stories of human shenanigans out amongst the stars. There were common stories about the absolutely insane things humans would eat, the strange animals that they were always trying to keep as pets, the insane strength hidden within their tiny bodies, the apparently fearless way that they dealt with high-stress situations, the friendship they offered, and the fierce loyalty that came with it. But other stories, the ones you heard in hushed tones, those painted in details of what humans were, the story of a human locking themselves in their berth for days, grieving for a friend who had passed. The story of a human who was so desperate to pull a friend to safety that they literally ripped their muscles apart. A human rescuing an orphan and raising it like it was their biological offspring. She did too. I still write with her every couple of months. Here's a picture of her son. He just graduated from secondary education. A combat was passed around the table, where a picture showed a human female being hugged by a massive alien wearing some sort of robe and matching flat-topped hat. Nice. They look so sweet together, said Baikonar, who smiled down at the picture before passing it on. I remember my first human. Her name was Nicole. She was a passenger on a passenger transport that I worked on on my first bids. She had the most beautiful dark brown skin, and her hair was a giant halo of softness that seemed to explode off of her head. She was always exuding bright blues and greens. The Bacchanal had a particularly wide range of vision, and said humans emitted energy in the infrared that most species couldn't see. I remember when I first saw her, sitting in a chair in the corner of the lounge, hunched over a portable computer, just blazing deep blues like she was on fire. I could tell that she was concentrating, so I didn't bother her. At the end of my shift, she was still sitting there, many demi-cycles later. I approached her to see if she was okay. She apologized for commandeering the little nook that she was in and explained that she was in the middle of writing a computer program. Apparently, she got into something called a flow state, where she had heightened concentration and focus. Supposedly, human programmers are sometimes known to work for more than a cycle uninterrupted. I would have assumed that she was joking, had I not seen her do this very thing several times during our time together. Truly, a remarkable race. Speaking of first humans, mine was a core maintenance engineer. He was skinny, even for a human. He lived on that coffee stuff. I remember him popping out of the most random spots, usually with some sort of tool pack in tow. He was always doing wired maintenance no one really understood. But at the end of his bid, he got a bonus for improving fuel efficiency of the core engines. One time, we were struck by some sort of debris, and the coolant pipe cracked. He shimmied up the pipe with a patch clamp and hung upside down with his legs while he attached and tightened down the clamp. When he finished, he was covered in coolant and said, Now that's a good time! He's a bit of a legend on that ship. I can't wait to meet my first human, said a greenhorn the rest of the crew had taken under their wings. 
They sound ridiculous. Oh, they are. But you have to be careful. Some humans are pranksters, said the Kyrgyz crewman. I think it's some sort of cult of chaos or something. Because any human that says that he's a prankster will play jokes on you whenever they can. They cause no end of disruption. My first human was one such, and I thought myself, surely if the whole race is like this, it is made of lunatics. Fortunately, most humans are not pranksters. My first human, said a small baron, was an absolutely massive creature. He was an author, a writer of human literature. He specialized in travel documentaries, with a focus on regional culinary specialties. I remember thinking that it was strange, because I ever saw of him as eat was likely seasoned root vegetables. When I asked about it, he said that after years of eating dishes that were barely compatible with his biology, he tended to eat bland food to spare his body trauma, until he arrived at his destination. He said that he did it for his fans. I didn't understand, but after a few moments he explained that he meant admirers of his work, not devices to create airflow. Many at the table laughed. Human languages had many idiosyncratic traps that made conversation interesting, to say the least. At this point, the Zuchki officer, who had been sipping a beverage a few seats away, came over and said, Not to interrupt, but I have heard from the captain that he has hired a few humans who are joining us at the next station. Two crewmen, an astrogation check, and a cook. Good evening, gentlemen. The Zuchki waved and trotted out of the bar. What's wrong? Why did everybody go so quiet? asked the Greenhorn. Human cook. Is the captain mad? I better get some non-perishable food. The Greenhorn looked confused. I thought human cooks were supposed to be some of the best. Why, why does everybody look so worried? Most of the time they are. Most of the time, said Kirkuk. But sometimes the human cook is a prankster. End of story. Story number two, Their Eyes, written by Swifthound. Human eyes, nothing quite like them in the galaxy. Humans themselves don't always notice it, but uh, most others do. If you stare into the black void for a moment longer than you normally would, you'll see something spectacular. Their eyes give their wants and worries away freely to anyone who looks into them. Most avert their own gaze the moment a human starts to stare. The feeling is frightening, first. I've seen waiters ask humans what they'd like to order at restaurants, only to yelp in surprise as the human's eyes lock onto theirs. Sometimes a human could call someone on the street to jump away without either of them really knowing why. The worst cases are always when a human surprises someone in the dark often causing light panic attacks. Most of these times, both parties were just as surprised by the other before eye contact was made. Some just shrug off the strange feeling and go about their day. Others theorize that it is caused by their predatory eyes, having both eyes staring in at the same direction, causing a primal fear reaction in species that were originally a prey of something. While that most certainly contributes to the effect's intensity, it's not the cause. Many predatory species exist within the galaxy, and none of them cause other sapiens to react like humans do. A few nutcases have started assuming that humans are inherently malicious, 
causing fear and anger to fester in groups bent on proving themselves right. Nothing could be further from the truth if I'm asked. The eyes of a human move blindingly fast, always darting straight to another spot, only to do the same over and over again in split seconds. Many species take their time in looking towards something, turning their heads along with their eyes. Human eyes always look at you before their head. Their eyes always lead their heads, which can look extremely disturbing, according to Sala. Many get the feeling that the body of a human is just a piece of flesh, led around like a puppet on a string, with the eyes conveying the true being inside. In a way, they're right. The eyes of humans are the windows to their soul, as the humans like to put it. The true reason is the sheer intensity. A human is never without passion for something. A perfectly calm-looking human on a date for the first time might look calm on the outside, but in their minds their mental alarms are blaring. They aren't relaxed, even if they look like it. When the waiter finally comes and asks the human for their order, the sheer disparity between calm outside and fire in the soul hits the person so intensely that they have no choice but to react. After they see the human's eyes, however, the feeling vanishes and they no longer seem calm to the observer. It takes a look into their eyes to truly know what they are feeling like. A human can be going about their day to day, once again normal on the outside, but thinking about a future exam at school. A shopkeeper might direct a question at the human, only to receive a flash of their anxiety delivered by their stare. A human worker on the way home after a busy day bumps into a co-worker, locking eyes with them and sending all of their stress from the day flying towards the unsuspecting, causing them to feel it all in a hard flash. After the moment of effect lingers, suddenly their words and body movements make sense to others, their eyes are the only thing that truly communicate how they feel. They might speak to someone, trying to convey their feeling, or even cry in front of another. But not a single true emotion gets transferred until they lock eyes. It's almost like a key. You have to feel that flash of emotion before you understand them. Or once you do, you'll see the human completely differently. Their care and passion can be felt bringing incredible floods of emotion from an otherwise unassuming form. Other species communicate their emotions more subtly, giving indications with their movements, colors, posture, and the like. Only humans have such an incredible intensity that it remains unseen to the outside. I once gave a speech in front of a mostly human audience and nearly fainted once I opened my eyes to look at the crowd. The front row was teeming with passion and excitement for my speech. I had never felt such things so strongly. My speech was changed on the fly and I was ever more invigorated by their eyes. For every sentence that passed my peak, I received a rush of emotion from them. I had to look past the crowd to calm myself enough to begin ending my speech. I could have gone on for hours if I hadn't stopped myself. Their eyes are a wonderful spectacle to witness. I enjoy going to cafes and talking to humans more than any other species. You can never know what they are feeling like until you call them out and stare into their eyes. It's exciting, exhilarating, and it feels so special to connect to someone so easily. 
I fear that I have gotten addicted to humans in this manner. Whatever you do, don't avoid a human's gaze. It is rude and dismissive by their culture. Even more importantly, don't take away your chance of feeling their emotion flash into your mind. Close your eyes and breathe deeply. Let out the air again and open your eyes slowly, striking a conversation. Feel their eyes burn into your mind as the floodgate of emotion passes you. Take a hold of the emotion they give you and relish in it. Whatever the human might be feeling, be it good or bad, after you look into their eyes, you will understand them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1232 Story number one. Why Humans Always Win. Written by Warpmine. So, I just don't get it. What makes these humans so scary? I sighed as my apprentice's persistent befuddlement. If nothing else, at least he was consistent in his lack of insight. And the subject of his bewilderment. I mean, the Drakkar are bigger and stronger, and just as smart... The Karathi are his unequaled masters of genetic engineering, and the Madonna are vastly better at physics. The Vlor are better merchants, the psychic little bastards. I shook my head, and the humans end up kicking their collective posteriors every time someone gets an uppity. Are you really unable to comprehend why humans are the most insufferably undefeatable species in the galaxy? My apprentice, I forgot his name. They seem to be two credits for a dozen these days, each as useless as a ceiling tile with a smiley face painted on it. Or maybe I'm just getting old and cranky. He nodded slowly, looking hopeful as he took a step back from the wiring closet. Well, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. They don't excel at anything. They're a second best at most, and usually fourth or fifth at things. At least if the athletics contests are anything to go by, or their academic statistics. I sighed. All right, kid. Let me tell you about a place called Tassana 4. It was a habitable world claimed by six species at once. It was, however, a diverse planet. It ended up in the six climates shared by a planet by dividing it into biomes. The Drakthar settled in the temperate forests. The Karathi built their colony in the rainforest area near the equator. The Madonna set up their mining colonies in the high mountains. The Velour took a nomadic lifestyle in the stony deserts and the Fruta made their habitats near the polar ice caps. He frowned. That's just five. Who are the sixth claimant? I smiled thinly. That would be humans. They made a deal with the other five. The humans would not build independent settlements, but would instead integrate with the other five to help with communications, diplomacy, and labor. For five years, the colonies all thrived. He narrowed his eyes. Okay, so the humans can negotiate their way in anywhere. Big deal. That still doesn't tell me why they were so terrifying. I nodded. No, it doesn't. Not yet. But the thing is, in the sixth year of the Tassano Fall settlements, disaster struck. An asteroid somehow made it too close to the planet before it was detected and slammed into it before a rescue operation could be mounted. Not only did the dust cloud blanket the planet for over two years straight, the impact caused the planet's axial tilt to shift by several degrees. The effects on the climate were devastating. Ice caps melted, deserts were flooded or began to bloom, 
rainforests withered, volcanoes erupted. The Drakkar, the Karathi, the Merdana, the Vlor, and the Fruta lost about half of their populations and impact, and the rest in the span of the next half a year. He paled. That's, uh, terrible, uh. And the humans? I grinned. I was on the rescue ships that arrived another year later. The humans had suffered about a 30% loss in impact, and less than 10% more after that. That's why they're always going to win, no matter what sort of situation you throw at them. Humans adapt. Sure, they might lose a chunk of their population, but so long as some survive the immediate crisis, the bastards can adapt to anything. My apprentice shook his head in disbelief. That's just ridiculous. Nothing can adapt to any circumstance. No species is that resilient. Right? Right on cue. Human Archie walked in behind my apprentice, quietly raising a mechanical hand to flick at my apprentice's ear. He spoke softly. Don't be so quick to dismiss humanity's ability to survive as a species or as individuals. My apprentice spun around to look at the sight of a human Archie for the first time. Prosthetic left arm and legs and visible robotics in the face. Human Archie looked like a poster boy for limb replacement. Actually, it sort of was. A few times. My apprentice stammered and blurted out, I, uh, uh, I, I, I didn't mean to offend her. What happened to you? Human Archie smirked. Stood a bit too close to a microfusion power plant when an asteroid hit. Foot and hand caught something between twelve and fifteen hundred rads, if I hadn't made it back to the dock as quickly as I did. <sighs> These robotics might have cost me more than an arm and a leg. The medication the dock put me on was really awful too. I think I was crapping blue for weeks, but uh, you know what they say, right? My apprentice swallowed hard, a few beads of sweat on his forehead. Um, no? Human Archie chuckled as he turned for the door, giving me a nod. It's amazing what you can get used to. End of story. Story number two. An unbelievable tale written by Rednall97. As a bartender on a frontier station, Darlock had heard many tales. Some believable, most less so. And while he couldn't yet tell which of those newest patron would tell, he already knew that it would be a good one. You want me to tell a story, huh? Well, sure. See that exploration glass cruiser over there? Want to know how it ended up looking like that? The green three-armed Tamarian said, pointing out the window. The ship in question was a Wayfinder, an SR-2 scout vessel, known for its incredible reliability and sturdiness. You wouldn't know it from looking at us now, however. Torn away antennas, partially mounted hull, and a big hole where its FTL core should be. For a ship like that to be in such bad shape, there had to have happened something truly horrible. That got the attention of more than a few people. So Tamarian continued. We were on a standard exploration mission. There was a light warp storm brewing, not nothing really serious. So, we, we didn't think about it. And then the sensors picked up an unknown vessel in our vicinity, which was very unusual so far out. It got even stranger when it got a visual on it. It was a strange vessel, and it was old. It still used warp sails. 
I have never seen a warp sail ships outside of a museum for stars sake. He took a sip from the drink one of the listeners paid him. Such was the tradition. He told the story. Others bought you something to keep your throat, all throat analogues, from getting dry. They get stranger. It looked like a sailship, no warp or solar sailship, but an honest goddess wooden and wet water sailship, like some species had before the invention of spaceflight, or even electricity. And it certainly had its better days behind it. Its sails had holes and patches everywhere, and its hull plating looked like rotten wood. We were so baffled by the sight, we were first didn't realize that it sent us a message. No hail or vid message, just a short text. Have mail, please send it home. One of the listeners interjected. Why wouldn't they just send it via warpnet? The storyteller used an interruption to make another sip of each drink. Who knows? But before the invention of warpnet, there was pretty usual practice. So we agreed, and the unknown ship launched its drone. Well, to call it a drone would be an overstatement. It was basically just a small round container. We got an intercept course, and just when we had the container stored away, all hell broke loose. He made a dramatic pause to take another drink, only to find his glass empty. But before he could say a word, another drink was ordered and placed in front of him. So he took a deliberately slow sip before continuing his tale. The navigator noticed that the sailing ship has turned around and was now directly heading towards us, deploying more sails and speeding up significantly. But the captain stared at our screens for an entirely different reason. Right behind the strange ship, the expected warp storm manifested itself. But it wasn't the light squall that we expected, but a truly monstrous wall of death. It also didn't move like a storm, but seemed to have its own mind. And it was following the other vessel like a pet. One of those dangerous ones, like some species used for hunting. When our captain released his gaze from the monitor, he just quietly stated, That storm wants a battle, and I'll be damned if we ain't outgunned. He then ordered us to make full speed for the next planet, with an atmosphere. The only safe place from the storm like that. That still doesn't explain the state of your ship, came another interruption from the crowd. The Tamarian took another sip and answered, I'd go to that if it wouldn't interrupt me every five minutes. That hole on the top right there where the FTL core should be. Well, it was almost immediately obvious that the other vessel and its pet storm was faster than us. Quite a bit faster. So our captain ordered the safeties deactivated and the core running at double load. Usually, the crew would have mutinied such an insane order. But somehow we all knew getting caught by that ship would be a fate worse than death. We heard its crew laughing, not through a transmission, but through the actual void of goddess damned space. Another dramatic pause and a sip. We ran like that for over a day, the core glowing red hot, barely kept from melting to slag by literally dumping buckets of water over it. We flew more in willpower than anything else in that point. With the unknown ship still on our tail, our core suddenly exploded about an hour before we were at the planet, so we dropped back into real space at about 1% C. So we had to make a long and very hard burn if we wanted to have any chance of landing onto that planet 
and not getting slingshotted away. I was one of the few that didn't just black out at the deacceleration. We burned almost our entire fuel in a matter of hours. And in the end, we were still so fast that the re-entry burned through over half a meter of our durasteel titanium hull. Never had an entry that came even close to melting a hull plate. A week ago, me neither. But look at her now. You can even see the ripples of molten alloy formed in the airstream. What about the mail? Came yet another interruption. Ah, yes, the mail. As soon as we, more rather less safely, touched down, we opened that container, and it were letters, as in actual physical ink sheets made of plant fibers on animal hide. According to our scanners, they were so old that anyone they might have been written for had to have died long before any of us were even born. After that, we sent out an emergency signal and were towed here. I know many won't believe me, but that's how I landed here. When a few minutes later, one of the listeners, a bipedal furless ape, stepped up to the bar, the storyteller just asked, Are you here to claim I'm only telling lies? No, quite the opposite. I truly believe every word, came the answer from the ape. I just wanted to ask if you saw the name of that ship. The reaction surprised him. So did the answer. I did, but our computer couldn't make sense of it, so I have no idea what the name is. The listener thought for a moment. If you see the name again, would you recognize it? After the Tamarian answered in the positive, the furless ape took out a piece of paper and wrote something on it. Did it look like that? Yes, its style is different, but the letters were the same. You know that ship. It's a legend my planet, dating back to the time of wet water ships. Consider yourself lucky. Few meet that ship and live to tell the tale. Anyways, I must now go. Here, the next drink is on me. The bartender still wasn't sure how true the tale was, but it certainly was the best that he'd heard so far. He inspected the left-behind paper. On it was written three words in Terran script. The Flying Dutchman. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1233. Story number one. Earth's Humanity's Beating Heart. Written by Ozzy Endeavor. Sentience is not uncommon in the universe. In fact, it is quite common. But sapience is something entirely different and so much more mysterious. When the spark of sapience ignites inside of a species... So too does it in the planet on which they live. The planet becomes aware of whom uses its surface, and it is aware of the one desire all sapiens share. To leave. To journey into space, to explore the stars and to live amongst them. To never look back. The furious tug-of-war always breaks out without fail every time a new sapient species emerges. If the species win, they abandon the planet leaving it dead and void of life as a shallow husk of its former self. If the planet wins, the species is confined to its surface for the rest of its existence. Any technological advances stopped in their tracks and left to rot away, unable to escape. This is how the universe worked for eons until another spark of sapiens came to be on a third planet of an average G-type yellow dwarf star. Earth awoke to a new world 
aware of creatures living on her surface. They could do things that she could not dream. They danced, they sang, they fought and killed. They built and destroyed, they loved and they loathed. She was fascinated by them and understood that she owed them her consciousness. For she only began to think once they did too. And they seemed to return the favor without knowing that she was there to listen. They painted her as a mother, as a giver of life, but also as a protector, a warrior, ruthless and tender. Earth realized that they thought of her the same way that she thought of them. She came to a conclusion. She was not their mother, for they were her source of life. They were born on the same random spark. They were died by fate. So she helped them as best she could. She could do very little, much less let them know that she was there. But nonetheless, she tried. She gave them little bushes, nudging them in the right direction. She could not control everything that happened, and felt pained and miserable when something tied to her harmed them. Every building was tumbled in a quake, left her feeling guilt for something out of her control. Every island buried in ash left her seething at the injustice. When push came to shove, her help paid off. Humanity put a few members on a ship and left her confines. They visited Luna, her companion for so long as she could remember. Then they simply returned. Willingly, she continued to help them and newfound vigor and trust in her kin. She would push them to the stars and they would always return. Eventually, they began to settle. And with the new settlements, there came new sapiens. Luna awoke, then Mars. Venus was a jerk, but that didn't matter. Together, Earth and humanity spread sapiens through the solar system, breathing new life into a dormant void. From the edges of the system came a new species. They were different from humanity and saw that Earth that they had created together and could not understand. They must have thought humanity were the prisoners of her under her influence. They asked them which planet was their home, so humanity pointed to Earth herself. They came with bombs and flames. They were trying to liberate humanity from their chains, as they said. Earth had never felt so much pain. She was in agony, and so, for the first time in her long life, she screamed. Her scream was silent, and yet all of humanity heard. There was no noise, but her cries were loud and clear. Humanity rushed in with a fury and beat back the liberators who tried to harm her. They protected Earth as best they could, but the others were much older and were not held back for long. They came in with newfound numbers and strength. Humanity had no chance. Earth would not let her again fall so easily. With determination fueling her, she reached out to humanity and pushed them beyond their prior limits, a species imbued with the power of their home planet. They were unstoppable. Humanity defended Earth, and so Earth defended them. The Liberators are all but forgotten, a distant memory. As to this day, humanity spreads out into the stars, breathing new life into the planets that they come across. And 
at the center of it all, Earth, humanity's beating heart. End of story. Story number two. Owning Your Keep, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Once the cryodoc has finished diagnosing and removing the cancer, your pod should automatically wake you up. This is the best we can do with this particular form of cancer. Most patients have gone under for between two and five years. Your case is uh, pretty advanced, so I would expect that it would be on the longer side. I would recommend that you go into stasis as soon as possible. How much time do you think you'll need to get ready? Tom sat looking at the doctor for a while. He thought about his stuff and his family. All lack thereof. About a week, should do it, Tom said. That's not much time, Mr. Davies. Are you sure? Most people take a month or more, the doctor replied. I got no family. I just moved to a new apartment, so I don't have a whole lot of stuff to deal with. I only have a few friends. I mostly work in my shop. That will be okay, because my partner is still going to be around. Okay, we'll schedule you for a week from today. If you think you need more time, call us. It's no problem. You got a duck. Just relax, Mr. Davies. The cryopod is self-contained power supply. Good for about 5,000 years, if I remember correctly. The unit is entirely self-contained. No matter what happens out here, you'll be okay. We haven't had any issues with this model since we started using them 75 years ago. Tom lay in the glass tube, chilly due to the lack of clothing. He felt the armature of the left latch onto his arm. He took a deep breath. All set, Doc. But me under. Sweet dreams, Tom. Next time we talk, you'll be perfectly healthy. The doctor pressed the final key and the tube sealed shut. Tom felt a chill run up and down his arm and slowly flowed around his body. He winked one last time at the dock and fell asleep. Tom knew that he was dreaming. He didn't know for how long. He had many strange dreams. He dreamt of his days in the workbench repairing industrial control equipment. He dreamt of Shelly and how she used to smile before it went bad and then she left. He dreamt of firestorms and earthquakes, sunny beach trips and old friends, strange dreams to be sure. But that's a tale for a different time. Tom woke up, warm and cozy, in a tube. He had made it. Feck you, cancer, he thought. He could hear and feel things happen as his tube prepared to descend him back into the world. After a long time, the tube unsealed and the top slid open so that he could set up. There was daylight streaming in through a window, but hardly. There was no glass. Tom felt the breeze before he registered the fact. He climbed out of the tube. His muscles weren't weak anymore. The cryodoc had stimulated the muscles as he slept and kept him toned. He felt leaves crunch under his foot. What the hell? He began to look around. All around him, cryopods were stacked around the room. All of them, empty. What the hell? They forgot me in this warehouse or something. He opened the drawer at the base of the unit where his belongings had been stored and quickly dressed. He was going to chew out whatever hospital stooge had left him there. But he wasn't mad. After all, his cancer was gone. The screen on the cryodoc confirmed as treatment successful flashed on the screen. Tom started off to go find the doc and give her an earful. He wandered around the storage facility for a while until he found an exit. It must have been a holiday, 
or a weekend, there was no one there. He walked outside, and that's when he realized. The buildings were different. He recognized a few, but some were gone, and there were a bunch he didn't recognize. But what really shocked him was that the buildings had at least been partially destroyed, and a strange forest had sprung up in the ruins. Fuck! Tom wandered around the ruins, looking for anything useful. He was starting to get hungry. The sun was getting lower. He was on edge between the industrial area where he'd woken up and the residential area. He went up to the first house and knocked on the door. He didn't realize he was holding his breath until he felt the heart beating loudly in his ears. He let it out. No one was home, clearly. He tried the door and found that it had been forced open in the past. He stepped gingerly onto the house, looking around. He made a beeline for the kitchen. The cabinets were hanging open, the drawers pulled out. He hunted around for a while and managed to find a rusty can of what he thought were beans or peas. The label was particularly legible. Another few houses, and he managed a can opener and a few more cans of food. A pot, a chef knife, matches, and some mismatched cutlery joined the pile. In one house, he found a reusable shopping bag, which he used to carry his haul. In one yard, he spotted a barbecue grill and built a fire. He opened and cooked a tin of what he hoped was actually cream corn. He was halfway through eating it when he spotted someone walking towards him from the end of the driveway. They were wearing leather buckskin clothes. The spear that he had looked homemade, but no less deadly, despite that. Tom put a pot down along with a spoon and held up his hands. Whoa, hey, take it easy, fella. I got no beef with you. I don't want no trouble. The man approached, his spear still held out, but he moved slowly. Tom heard a noise behind him and turned a little to see two more men approaching from the rear. They also had deadly-looking homemade spears. Tom held his hands up higher. No threat, fellas. Please calm down. The man who approached from the front was close enough to smell. He was doing just that, sniffing at Tom. After a moment, he waved at the two others. They came up and smelled him as well. After a moment, the first one stood up and said, When did you wake up? When did they put you to sleep? Five hundred years, we think. Are you fucking serious? Fuck me! The man Jackson had informed Tom that while he was sleeping, more than a few years had passed. Apparently, the dreams of earthquakes and firestorms were Tom being forcibly awakened by some sort of bombs. They weren't nuclear, but they were big. Jackson and the rest of his people were the descendants of survivors. The only problem was that most people were killed, and the few survivors had limited knowledge. Housewives and janitors, car salesmen and nannies. There were a few big brains, but they could hardly be relied on to teach the next generation anything when everyone was scrabbling to survive. The first years, even more died of starvation. At one point, the survivors' offspring were down to just 30 or 40 people. But two things happened that saved them. One, they met another group that was on a long-range scouting foray, and they were able to broker peace between tribes. They shared hunting and growing techniques and would intermarry to keep the blood fresh. Two, a strange man who had no weapons and smelled like witch hazel had wandered into the tribe territory. After being brought before an elder, he was revealed to be a sleeper, just like Tom. He had known many things that were lost. He taught the children to read and do math. 
He taught them about crop rotation and weather patterns and much more. He had been an elementary school teacher and had raised the education level of the tribe quite high. Even now, generations later, Jackson's tribe was amongst the smartest. And now, here was Tom, reeking of witch hazel and completely unarmed. Jackson explained all of this to Tom, who was sitting in the same beat-up plastic yard chair, staring down at his cold cream corn. Okay, said Tom, after a few minutes of processing. So, um, what now? Nightfall soon. We are going back to the tower. You can come with tonight. We'll decide what to do then, Jackson said. They started down the driveway. Tom grabbed his sack of goodies from the houses and followed Jackson. The other two armed men followed behind. It was fair to say that Tom was impressed. The tower turned out to be the base of a skyscraper which had fallen over. The first ten floors were mostly intact. The first floor had been barricaded against big cats and bears. They weren't super common, but they were occasional threats. Everyone lived on the third through fifth floors, where areas had been occupied by families for generations. The seventh and eighth floors were storage and work areas, and the last two floors were partial and exposed to the outside. They'd been turned into farm spaces and water capture storage. Off to one side was an outdoor kitchen area. According to Jackson, all the top floors of the surrounding buildings were set up the same way, but everyone lived in this tower, and all the food and water was here. There were a few hunters, but most of the clan farmed. Our were craftsmen. Tom was introduced to the clan, and shown to a room normally reserved for visiting members of allied groups. Tom was wandering the tower with one of the men that he'd first met along with Jackson as his chaperone. After a week, he was getting a touch stir-crazy. He had tried helping out, but he just didn't have the skills needed for such an agrarian lifestyle. He was heading downstairs when Paulson stopped him. This is the ground floor. There is nothing down here but ghosts of the past. Contraptions that no one can understand. Well, let me take a look. I might be able to find something useful, Tom said. Paulson thought about it for a minute, and then nodded. They headed down another level. He knows the old ways from before. He claimed to be able to fix these things. I didn't think it would matter, Paulson said. Jackson nodded. He headed down into the dark basement. He wandered around in the murky darkness for a while, his small torch glittering as he walked. After a few minutes, he found Tom sitting at a bench, twisting two wires together. Jackson, just in time. I found a stash of atomic batteries. Check this out. Tom touched two wires together and a glow panel in the room ceiling lit up. Sweeter, if we find more of these or solar panel or two, I might be able to get us some functioning lights and maybe even some small appliances. If you can loan me a guard like Paulson, we can check other buildings for materials. How did you do that? Jackson asked. I just wired it up. I was a repair tech before I went under. If I can get to my old shop and my tools are there, this is nothing. Congratulations, Thomas. You just earned your place in the tribe. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then... I hope that you have a fantastic one.
Cheers.